consider what they have written in there. It therefore reminded me, honorable members, to say that uh, all the presentation that we are receiving here is a summary of a document that is available out there in our VIMBA system. Uh, I do acknowledge that there are certain members who indicated their challenges in accessing VIMBA. Uh, and therefore, Ms. Machalamba is arranging a training for those members. Uh, I would, would announce that much earlier so that we could all make time to attend because uh, it's a parliamentary IT uh, sort of system that allows us to access very large documents that uh, you need to then uh, get to be trained on. Uh, that part will come through. So this document that was of critical care of South Africa is also part of that. And all other documents that we get presented here are already in our system. They just come here to indicate the, the salient points of what is a broad presentation that they do have. And so in welcoming you, we'll then be starting shortly with the uh, Free Market Foundation, I think, yes, Free Market Foundation presentation. But before that, may I ask Ms. Machalamba to indicate the members who have logged in, uh, who will then be taken as being present in the meeting today. Good morning and thank you, Chair. Present is Dr. Lomo, Mr. Munyai, Ms. Gela, Mr. Sokacha, Dr. Jacobs, Dr. Harvard, Ms. Wilson, Ms. Ishmael, Ms. Uh, Dr. Tembekwayo, Ms. Chirwa, Ms. Lengwa. I've received apologies from Mr. Van Staden, Ms. Sukers, and Mr. Sheikh Imam. Thank you, Chair. Okay, thank you very much. Those members will then be listed as being present in this meeting. And then may I therefore invite the team uh, from Free Market Foundation to make their presentation. You have 45 minutes to actually speak to the members here. And thereafter, honorable members will interact with your presentation in a form of questions uh, and clarity seeking questions. Your 45 minutes starts now when you request to be sharing your slides with us. Thank you very much. Uh, good morning, Chair. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Chair. Let me share my screen. Uh, let's see. Thanks. Uh, good morning, Honourable Chair, Honourable Members uh, of the Committee, uh, or, or every other guest who's here. Thank you very much for the opportunity for the Free Market Foundation to deliver this comment on the National Health Insurance Bill. My name is Chris Hutting. I'm a Deputy Director at the Free Market Foundation, and joining me this morning is Michael Setas. He is the Chairman of the Free Market Foundation's Health Policy Unit. I'll do a quick overview of the Free Market Foundation's position, and then I'll hand over to Mike for the bulk of our time. Just a little bit on South Africa's current state of play. We don't believe that the state has sufficient technical expertise and is running out of funding. The inefficiencies and tragedies associated with the public sector are becoming all too common. ESCOM's debt is a, a big issue on the South African fiscus. Uh, we don't believe that we should necessarily add to that and add to the burden on future generations. We don't think that is fair. 
Um, implementing the NHI won't necessarily solve increasing health misspending. For this, refer to the latest report from the Auditor General. Over-involvement of the state tends to lead to less desirable outcomes. There are no objective reasons to believe that the NHI will necessarily perform better than South Africa's other SOEs. There is great room for improvement in the public sector and, we must add, in the private sector, but no reason to presume that nationalizing the management of all healthcare in the hands of state bureaucracy will solve the problems in healthcare and give more equitable access to universal healthcare for South Africans. Alternatives that the FMF would like to promote, placing the power in the hands of the citizen, fi financing healthcare for the poor, preferably via state-sponsored vouchers, which the indigent can spend where they choose, encouraging more private hospitals by deregulating the industry and eliminating certificates of need. This would be great in Gauteng at present, of course, where we're seeing the problems associated with the state trying to uh, regulate too much which hospitals can be built and which can't. Reducing prices and increasing healthcare quality through increased competition. Allowing the private sector to train doctors and nurses. Encouraging income producing medical tourism. This will be critical, especially in a post pandemic world and where we might face more pandemics in the future. Retaining skilled South Africans and attracting others by removing the limit on skilled foreign doctors. Deregulating medical schemes so they can offer their clients exactly what they want and they can leave medical schemes when they aren't happy with the service they receive. Deregulating pharmacies. Removing price controls which send mixed messages to the industry. Speeding up registration of clinical trials. Giving those who pay for their own healthcare a tax deduction. Strengthening intellectual property rights that encourage innovation, better products and ultimately cost savings. And finally, allowing low-cost insurance options throughout the medical industry. Corruption concerns. This is not an issue solely directed at the current government. We don't believe that any minister or government should have the level of power that the NHI will grant. The Eastern Cape and Gauteng healthcare sectors are in various states of disarray due to years of corrupt behavior. This also points to the problems of increased centralization that the NHI will bring. The SIU investigations into PPE misspend. Not even a global pandemic prevented looting behavior, and we shouldn't presume that the NHI will guarantee that corruption won't happen. No system is perfect, of course, but when one increases the incentives for corruption, one will probably see more corruption. If we continue to mix the state with the economy, we increase the chances for unscrupulous actors in both government and the private sector to try and corrupt processes and set things up to their benefit only. Finally, the NHI is not the kind of structural reform that South Africa needs. South Africa should not pursue policies and plans that could add to the growing debt-to-GDP ratio, placing burden on future generations. The NHI will not alleviate the problems in the public healthcare sector, nor those in the private sector. and It will not solve current corruption-associated hurdles. South Africa needs policies that unlock and encourage economic activity, job creation, and progress. Sorry, point we need dynamism, order, not stagnation. Hold on, the NHI is not the appropriate vehicle for South Africa to attain better health coverage. Mr. Hatching, Mr. Hatching, yes, yes, hold sir. on, hold on. There's a point of order from Honorable Wilson. What is that point, Honorable Wilson? Uh, sorry, Chris, you're, you're speaking faster than the slides, so we're back. Oh. <laughs> you can slow, slow it down just a little bit. Thank you. Okay, that the, this one is the final slide. Um, sorry. 
Uh, let's just see. This, this one is my final slide. I'll just uh, pop up the points again um, and, and leave it there for a, a few seconds. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. My apologies. I'm in such rarefied company, so I got a bit nervous. <laughs> Um, okay, I will stop my screen share now and hand over to Michael Setas, the chairman of the FMF Health Policy Unit. Uh, Chris, just hold on there. Mr. Hutting, what we have just presented to us, we do have. Uh, I don't know whether what is coming through now also was sent to us. Maybe I will be corrected by the secretariat. Do we have yes, Jay, this? we we sent both the presentations through yesterday. Okay. Yeah, and this one that we have just finished, I have it. Okay. Uh, okay. Can we then make sure Ms. Majaramba will also receive it? I don't know. Maybe I didn't look at I just saw one FMA and then I said that okay, this is the one. Uh, I don't know this, I don't have this one. Uh, please resend it to the group chat, uh, Ms. Machalamba. Thank you. And then you can continue, sir. Thanks. Thank you, Chair. Uh, Mike, I think over to you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Dola. Thank you very much uh, to all our members as well. Um, my name is Mike Setis. As Chris said, I'm chair of the Health Policy Unit at the Free Market Foundation. Um, I can presume everyone can see the screen. Yes, we thank can. You. Thank you, Dr. Dona. Okay, so um, so today I'm just going to look at four points here: the NHI policy process, the, uh, some international comparisons as to how South Africa fares on that, what the fiscal implications are for this proposal, and then the structure of the NHI and how it's going to change the existing health structures that we have. So we'll start with the problem statements that we're putting to the SEERS, uh, the Socioeconomic Impact Assessment. There was a provisional one done in 2017 and then again in 2019. Um, these are some extracts that we've taken out there, but to start with this point here on universal health coverage. So the statement is that South African government is committed to the goal of UHC universal health coverage, and to date this progress has been limited by the existing health financing structure. The NHR bill proposes the transformation of the South African health system to achieve universal health coverage. And then the overall aim of the revised NHR bill is to create a legislative framework for moving towards universal health coverage. To continue that, the South African health system is historically inequitable. Uh, we spend 8.6% on healthcare, but roughly a 50-50 split between the public and private sector, uh, serving vastly different population sizes. The current health system financing system punishes the poor. NHI is thus premised on the principles of social solidarity. Um, some more problem statements. All these factors, that being the disease burden, place an excessive burden on the public health system that is under-resourced. Um, inequity in health financing and fragmentation are worsened by the health financing system. And in addition to final financial resource misalignment, the public health system is characterized as delivering poor quality as a result of a maldistribution of human resources between the public and the private sector. And then just to add some political statements, uh, this was to a parliamentary uh, question session uh, from the Minister of Health, who said that the reason for the shortage of doctors is that the public health sector budget has not increased in real terms for the past 10 years. Um, and then from 
Dr. Shasana, who was chair of the Ministerial Advisory Committee on NHR, this maldistribution of human resources between private and public is at the root of the healthcare crisis. So from our point of view, just to summarize what we wanted to put, put down, this is what the problem statements are emphasizing. Um, SA does not have universal health coverage. The health system is inequitable, so therefore needs social solidarity. The public health sector is under-resourced financially and in human resources. And the public sector health budget has declined in real terms in the past 10 years. So what we're going to do now is go ahead and interrogate each of these points and put our views and factors on what, what we see this as. So I think just in terms of universal health coverage, um, we believe that South Africa does already have it. And there are a number of reports that, that emphasize this. The International Labour Organization World Social Protection Report of 2017 found no coverage gaps in South Africa from either an inability to pay or from a lack of access. Even the World Health Organization and the World Bank give South Africa a service coverage index of 0.67. That's a very high coverage level for a developing economy. And um, to put it in perspective, Sub-Saharan Africa is at 0.42, Europe is at 0.77. Um, and then last year, the Health Market Inquiry, South Africa already provides near universal access to healthcare to its citizens uh, through a combination of publicly available services and regulated private markets. So the issue about universal health coverage, we believe that the problem statement is missing what, what, is, what exists in reality. In terms of equity and social solidarity, we'd like to look at this report from Econix, a group of health economists based in Cape Town. Um, and this was done in a report uh, looking at how the public sector is financed and who benefits from it. And the way the report was done was to split South Africa's population into five quintiles uh, on the basis of income. Um, with quintile one in the light blue being the poorest quintile and the dark blue quintile five being the the wealthiest quintile, and then sort of look at who finances what proportion of public sector health expenditure and who receives benefits out of the public health sector. So if we have a look at these two positions there, then we see that quintile five, which is the richest, contributes 68.2% towards public sector financing, receives 12.7%. So the net contribution by the richest quintile is more than half of the public sector budget comes from that richest quintile. Whereas if we look at the opposite end there at the bottom, 2.1% uh, of financing is obtained from the poorest quintile, but they benefit 18%. So we believe that these factors are very much in line with social solidarity. So again, we see a disconnect between the problem statements and what the reality is in having a look at these figures. If we look at provincial public expenditure, we took here an analysis of uh, 10 years from 2010 to 2020. And in the white column, we looked at the provincial expenditure in nominal terms, and you can see it went from about 92 billion to 216 billion over that 10 year period. If we then assess that in real terms, so in other words, take out the uh, inflation factor on that, and we peg these prices in 2010 values, so the increase then in real terms was a very substantial 50% from 92 billion to 138 billion. Again, emphasize set in 2010 prices there. Obviously, it's also important to have a look at the, uh, how the population changes over time, because um, obviously with growth, then there's less on a per capita basis. So what we did then is we 
took the real expenditure and also looked at it on a per capita basis, and that we see in the green column there. So on a per capita basis, in real terms, budget again has increased quite substantially from 2,143 to 2,748. So it's a 28% increase in real per capita terms over the 10-year period. And if we actually go back to 2000 and extrapolate that forward, we'll see that this trend has continued through. So the public health budget has been growing very substantially for a very, very extensive period of time. And the Department of Health's wages, I mean, this is an analysis maybe to look at in the context of what we've just looked at there with budget increases. So this was a uh, study by Treasury, um, amongst others, published in 2017. And here we see that the wages across all posts, so it's being administrative and medical, increased by 55% in real terms from 2006 to 2016. So obviously the increase in budget is also being taken up by the rising wages in the Department of Health. Um, in terms of public sector medical personnel, um, the absolute numbers have grown very substantially. If we have a look here, this is the same study from Treasury, also, as I said, published in 2017. So from 2006 to 2016, we've seen a 42% rise in the number of medical personnel actually employed within, within the state, within the public sector. So there hasn't been a decline in budget and there hasn't been a decline in the actual number of medical personnel. If we look at the distribution of medical personnel across between the public and the private sector, this is a study produced by the Department of Health, the last human resource strategy done. And if you look at the bottom right there, you will see the split between public and private is 72-28. Um, but I draw your attention to the top right, where this report is quite old, from 2011. So it partly ignores the substantial increase in medical personnel we saw in the previous slide. So that the split between public and private, whereas now on the graph here it shows roughly 3 to 1, it may possibly be closer to 4 to 1. Um, but no newer evidence or no newer information is unfortunately available. So this is the best we could get at this time. But I think the emphasis here is that the vast majority of medical personnel in South Africa work in, uh, in the public sector. We do underscore the medical specialists here because there is definitely an imbalance there. Um, but I think to draw to the point as well that for the past two decades, the public sector has cut back on specialist posts in favour of primary care spend. So specialists have no had had no alternatives but to either immigrate or to migrate towards the, the private sector. So the problem statements versus reality. Um, the problem statement, SA does not have universal health coverage. Well, we emphasize and show that it does. The health system is inequitable is a problem statement, but we're showing that 20% of the richest South Africans fund 68% of the budget, very much in line with social solidarity. The public health sector is under-resourced, but again, we're showing that in real per capita terms, the budget has increased by 28% over the period 2010 to 2020. Uh, and even in human resources, from 2006 to 2016, we've had a 42% increase in the number of medical personnel employed in the state. Possibly what could be a, a problem statement is that Wages seem to be absorbing much of what's coming into the budget with a 55% increase in real terms, also from 2006 to 2016. So just um, some more comments on this year, specifically the June 2019 year. 
Um, in that, much of the statements are that it assumes without evidence or research that the NHR will yield the promised results. Um, we fail to see where or how that is explained in terms of it. Where there are objections from stakeholders, um, often these are discounted just by referring to the principles of NHR. Example, that the single payer fund will bring about cost reductions, but no, there's no technical analysis as to how exactly that will be achieved other than to state it as a principle. There's also been no evaluation of alternatives to NHR, and you know we understand this as to be a requirement of an SCA uh, to look at alternatives to avoid um, uh, unintended consequences. And only the 2017 SIA touched on this briefly, as, as we know, um, and that was either complete privatization of all assets in the country or retain the status quo, um, neither which to really to us are plausible alternatives or looked at and interrogated into any detail or any technical analysis. So we believe the CEO has failed to really achieve what, what its intended objection is, what intended objective is, um, and that is to go through all these proposals, alternatives. <clears throat> so from a point of view of public participation as well, um, given that uh, it is a requirement for the public to be aware of issues in terms of pending legislation and new policy, um, this, we believe there's no way the public can know any of the following really important issues because they haven't, either haven't been analysed or assessed or are impossible to do so. Things like how much the NHR will cost, um, to us it's a concern that there's been no assessment, no technical assessment of the cost of this factor, which then raises the point of you know, what taxes will need to be raised and by how much to fund NHR. Another point we want to put here is that the NHR is a monopoly single-payer system um, and that there's only one developing economy that has ever built such an equivalent to that, and that is Cuba. But if we look at Cuba's health system, it consumes 13% of GDP, making it the most expensive uh, health system of any developing economy in the world. Um, and why would the NHR policy proposal be pursued if it if such a system is this expensive. Um, why are warnings by Treasury and the Davis Tax Committee on the lack of affordability of NHR being ignored? And then alternatives to the NHR, where are they? What are they? Can we have a look at those? Why the role of medical schemes has been relegated to complementary role? Um, in other words, they cannot compete with the NHR. And this is globally unprecedented. It's not health system in the world. Has taken such a substantial component of its health system and swept it aside um, in favor of, an, of a new untested system. And then also the issue of NHR proposals have focused largely on funding, but how will um, public health facilities be strengthened to a point where they have delivery quality care? We don't believe any of that has been assessed to any great degree in, in the policy process. The policy assumes that more money will rectify quality, but as we showed in our previous slides, that more money and more human resource has been available in the public sector, quite substantially so, yet quality has deteriorated. So I think this needs to be addressed in more detail. Um, the arguments, the uh, problem statements have been that there hasn't been sufficient money and there has been a decline in resource, but we've seen the opposite, that there actually has been but quality has still not really improved accordingly. 
So that brings us to the next point in my slides. Uh, we're going to have a look at the international comparisons here with some other countries. So what we did is an exercise is we listed all countries by their per capita GDP. And what we then did is we took South Africa uh, in that list uh, at its per capita GDP. And we found the country that had a per capita GDP closest to double that of South Africa. And then took all the countries between South Africa and that country and we came up with 25 countries. So the objective of this was that it, was a, um, it wasn't selective. Um, so these countries all have different um, health systems. Um, but the, the essence of it is that all of these countries have a higher per capita GDP than South Africa does. So we are the poor cousin in this comparison that we're going to go into now. And all of these economies are developing economies um, as by classification. So what we did is we then plotted those countries, plotted their per capita GDP on the bottom horizontal scale that you can see there against their per capita public health spend on the left-hand side of the vertical column. And all these prices are set in uh, US dollars in 2017 values to obviously go in parity. So as I mentioned, South Africa is the, the lowest per capita GDP in this analysis. And you can see us there on the far left-hand side. Um, and then if we have a look at how we, how we ex expenditure compares to these other countries, 14 countries spend the same or less on per capita basis than South Africa does. Even if we look at within 20%, uh, of our, our budget, we then get a further seven countries. So 21 out of the 24 comparative countries spend slightly more or the same or less than South Africa does. So our, our public health expenditure on a per capita basis is not out of line internationally. We only see three countries here that spend significantly more, uh, one very significantly right at the top. We'll look at that just now. So what we did on this as well is we then took the same 25 countries and we looked, we kept the public health spend on the left there on that uh, vertical column. We then compared the five-year mortality rates, the outcomes of that on the bottom scale on the horizontal. And now South Africa comes out at the third worst five-year mortality rate in this uh, sample of 25 countries. Um, and if we're going to have a look at how we compare, uh, 13 countries get better outcomes uh, for similar or lower expenditure on public health. And even if we isolate it into that next red block there, we'll see there are 10 countries in that block that get significantly better outcomes at significantly at roughly the same cost or lower. Um, now, I highlighted the country at the top there, um, and that country is Cuba. As I mentioned earlier, I spoke about the health expenditure sitting at where it is, but the commonality between the NHI proposals and the Cuban health system or that they're very much a carbon copy. Um, Cuba nationalized its health system some decades ago. It is also a single-payer monopoly model and highly centralized in its, in its management and its structure. And its health spend is 13% of GDP. If we have a look at how that then compares in terms of outcomes, yeah, we see that there are eight countries in this red block that get similar outcomes on a five-year mortality that than Cuba, but it's significantly lower costs. Now, I think this is, emphasizes our point that these highly centralized monopoly models are very inefficient in terms of how they achieve outcomes. They're very expensive, and we believe should not be a process that we should be following 
um, or copying in terms of what Kiva's done. The same 25 countries, then again, if we have a look, we, we now list them on a graph here. This is the public health expenditure in each of the, the countries, the same 25. Again, you can see Cuba on the far left here as an outlier. Um, this is the private spend, and that includes out-of-pocket spend. So it's the private prepaid, um, as well as out-of-pocket expenditure on the green bar. So the average for public across these countries is 4.2%. And the average for private is 3.2%. Um, but we note with concern that what the NHI proposal wants to do is put public spend up to 8.5% of GDP, which is globally unprecedented in terms of um, developing economies, with the exception, obviously, of Cuba, but it is a complete and total outlier in that essence. Then just look at some fiscal implications in terms of what NHI is proposing. So here we have a look at expenditure analysis between the private sector and the public sector. On the private sector on the left, uh, 2019 values, 4.6% uh, of GDP, uh, $234 billion, and that is all spent either through medical schemes or on an out-of-pocket basis. The out-of-pocket could be either insured or uninsured members. Um, but the emphasis is that's voluntary private money. And the vast majority of it is post-tax money. Um, of medical scheme contributions, 89% is post-tax funds. Uh, the tax credit only provides relief on about 11% of the contributions on average. Obviously in the public sector, that's um, tax funded and it devolves to the provinces through the conditional grant and the provincial equitable share. And that value there is at 4.4% of 223 billion. And if we have a look at that divided across the uninsured population, and from stats essay numbers for 2019, that was 49.5 million citizens. We then get a per capita public expenditure of 4,505 rand per person per annum. And what we're going to do in the next slides is we're going to keep that number at the top right there. So if you, if you just ask as for reference. But then if we have a look at what the basis of the NHI proposals are, and that is to combine private expenditure and public expenditure into the NHI fund. Uh, the two percentages that I've got in each of these blocks adds up to 9%. Um, but the white paper, to the both white papers spoke of 8.5% requirement to NHI fund. So we've kept it at 8.5% rather than the 9. Um, but then the intent is to remove the medical tax credits, which provides an additional 26 uh, billion there in terms of funding, plus remove the state subsidy that government provides to employees for medical scheme participation, and that we estimated about 35 billion. So that would provide then the 284 billion per annum from the public sector, which is about 5.6% of GDP. So the balance to get to 8.5% for the NHI fund will be 2.9% of GDP, and that would need to be raised through NHI dedicated taxes. So that gives 432 billion into the NHI fund. <clears throat> and because the NHI fund has been set up as a monopoly complementary system, that needs to be divided out across the entire population. Um, and our figures for 2019 from StatsSA was at 58.5 million. So that gives an increase a public or NHI budget of 7,385, which is substantially higher than the current public sector budget of uh, 4,505. 
but that's in that's in theory. Um, <clears throat> so let's have a look and just um, interrogate that to a greater degree. So the the probability of raising an amount of nearly three percent of GDP and additional taxes is fiscally it's, it's highly unfeasible. Um, any of um, economists who've spoken to flatly regarded as totally impossible. Um, but if you look at it, it does require increasing personal income tax by 32%, which is a very, very substantial number. Um, bearing in mind that we have a very narrow tax base, um, slightly more than half a million private individuals paid 73% of taxes in 2019. That's only 2.5% of uh, registered taxpayers. And we note with concern that there's been a sharp decline in specifically high-income taxpayers over the last few years. So the buoyancy in which the ability to raise this we question substantially. And um, if we do have take that out of the picture, so it's unable to fund it, then what we're left with is the 284 billion or 5.6% of GDP inside the NHI fund. And that then, if we have a look at how that uh, equates across, again, the whole population of 58.5 million, that gives only a 7.7% increase on the current public sector budget. But we also then raise concern, yeah, if we look at the state subsidy that is currently provided to government employees um, of about 35 billion, we see at the moment the government is struggling in terms of stalemate with public uh, sector unions in terms of wage negotiations. So we're not sure that it's going to be as easy as is considered to simply remove the state subsidy and that the public sector unions won't demand that it's either repaid in cash or some turns back into um, government employees' packages. So if we take that out of the picture, we're then left with 249 billion or 4.9% of GDP, which actually means that the NHR per capita budget is then 5.5% less than what the current public sector budget is. So the point about the NHR fund attaining to get more funds is predicated on um, what we believe highly improbable possibly uh, probably highly improbable factors such as raising this amount of tax, potentially taking out that subsidy. We're not quite sure, and that's really going to not leave us in a well. It leaves the NHR fund with a lower per capita budget than currently exists in, in the public sector, which obviously then the entire proposal then falls flat as far as we can see. Another concern and of major financial concern for the fiscus is this issue here. Um, I'm sure, I mean, it's been well publicized as to how this number has been growing over the last number of years. And the latest Auditor General's report pegged that at 105 billion. Nowhere in the proposals has anything been said about how this is going to be addressed or where the liability is going to rest. If it's going to sit on government's balance sheet, will it be passed into the NHR fund? Um, we don't know. But of concern is that the current budget for the Department of Health is 248 billion for this fiscal year. And that liability is equal to 42% of the budget. So a very substantial problem that needs to be addressed. I'd like to touch on monopoly single payer systems, which is what the NHI is. I mentioned earlier about Cuba having built um, a similar system, and it's the only developing economy that's built a similar system. In fact, there are only five countries in the world that have built one, including Cuba. Um, and I'll go through some details about them now. The first one is Britain. Um, the, the National Health Service there. Uh, their total health spend is just sort of 10% of GDP. 
And because of the monopolized nature of single pass uh, of the uh, this type of proposal, uh, the public spend as a percentage of total is usually very high, which it is yeah, the British system at 79%. And the out-of-pocket is sitting at nearly 16%, a reasonable level for a high-income country. Canada is the next example. Um, their spend is slightly higher at 11.2%. Um, and public as a percentage of total spend is 73% and out-of-pocket very similar to, to the British system. Then we get to Cuba, which we've touched on before. Their expenditure is very, very high for a developing economy at 13.2. Uh, public expenditures percentage of total is also very high at 83% and out-of-pocket slightly lower at 9. Estonia is the next country. Um, its GDP spend is quite a bit lower at 7%. Public as a percentage of total still high at 75 But then what you see here, because of the lower total spend, out-of-pocket then is pretty high. Um, now, 23% is, is very high, um, especially for a lower income. Although Estonia is a developed economy, um, its per capita GDP is nowhere near what that's like in Britain and Canada. The last country is Taiwan, which spends at 5.8%. 63% of uh, total is public. And then again, very, very high out-of-pocket spend. Now, all of these countries are the same, similar systems, and none of them are identical uh, to what the NHR proposals are. Um, but also the NHR proposals are emphasizing uh, numerous points that uh, healthcare services will be free. But yet all of these countries have fairly significant out-of-pocket spends. These last two quite substantial at 23 and nearly 31%. And also the emphasis is that the disease burden of all these countries is nowhere with that is of South Africa. So these countries are still struggling with costs. Even though they have all the other metrics better than South Africa's, their disease burden is, um, is lower. And also the, the economics is not nearly as bad as ours. They don't have unemployment rates as we do. They have much better tax buoyancy because they have hired more numbers of taxpayers. Mr. So Sitnaz, um, they've gone way over what South Africa's NHR proposal is intending to do. Mr. Sitnaz, the public health budget through the NHR to 8.5% of GDP. Remember, that won't be total spent because they'll still be out of pocket and they'll still be private prepaid. So, what Mr. we used to say is the Mr. average Sitnaz. of these five countries Mr. On the out of pocket came out at 1.6%. Mr. Sitnaz, the average year. Uh, Honorable Chair. Mr. Sitas. Uh, Mr. Michael Sitas is ignoring you. And he has Mr. the seat at his time. We have gone way beyond your time that we allocated you. Way beyond it. I thought you had a watch, and I do have. We gave you 45 minutes, and that is way beyond it now. Okay. You're still muted, Mike. Ah, sorry. Okay. Uh, apologies. Um, we can end it there then. That's fine. I didn't realize we'd gone so far over. Let me just check. Hello. We started at 10 past, quarter past. It's 10, 10 to 11. Is this still, is there, are we certain on okay. time? No, 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 no. 11.45. Okay. No, no. We started at the quarter past 10. Yes. 
Yeah, no, 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 I'm sorry. It should finish in the next 10 minutes. Yes, no, you're correct. Yeah, no, no, uh, it's finishing in the next 10 minutes. I thought we started at 10. Now I realize we started at quarter past 10 honorable members. So they'll have 10, they still have 10 minutes to finish off. Thank you, Doctor. You gave me a heart attack there, but <laughs> thank you. Oh, okay, I'll carry on. So um, I just need to set here. Okay, so um, total expenditure will be nearly 11% of um, GDP, which for a developing economy is, is entirely unprecedented, for the exception of Cuba. There's no other developing economy that have health expenditure that high. So to finish off, these will be the last few slides, and I'm sure we'll make it in the next 10 minutes. Um, so just to um, emphasize what the current structures are in our, in our health system. So what we have here is the, uh, the private sector, um, contributed mostly through medical schemes, and to emphasize the point here that the member contributions make up 89% on average of what goes into the into medical schemes, so post-tax money, and the tax credits, which is provided through Treasury, amounts to about 11% of the funding that travels through medical schemes. And that then obviously is provision of private healthcare for approximately 9 million people. On the public side, then, the tax revenue devolves to, to the provinces through the conditional grants and the provincial equitable share. And then the provinces are then uh, tasked to obviously manage and finance public facilities and staff for the provision of approximately 51 million people. Um, the proposed structure, however, in the NHI is to remove very substantial portions of both the public and the private sector and to put them into this structure over here. On the medical scheme side, they would still exist, but they, only, they would only be allowed to fund non-NHI healthcare. So that would be known as a complementary system. And we believe the numbers here would then decline dramatically if that was the case, depending on what extent the NHR basket of care is going to be. Um, and then if we have a look at what's going to happen on the public side is um, general tax collections will be supplemented with dedicated NHR taxes into the NHR fund. And the NHR fund will then contract with both private and public sector providers to deliver care to the entire population of nearly 60 million people, as we know it now. So the procurement of services, the protocols, and the funding of service types and resource allocation, which typically is now done through the provinces, will be taken away from the provinces and put up into the NHR fund. Uh, we believe this may have some constitutional issues and some concerns around that, and I'm not sure how the provinces are going to be, to be dealing with that from their perspective. Um, I'd like to touch on, we, we spoke about Britain's National Health Service earlier, and we did say that it is a monopoly single-payer system. But it's quite different in terms of how um, most of the others, certainly how the NHR fund is proposing. So these services here that are proposed to be centralized now in the NHR fund, the British National Health Service for the last three decades has actually gone about decentralizing all of these services. And the reason they've done that is that they found that their system is highly inefficient uh, in a centralized nature. Um, the National Health Service in Britain was centralized from about when it was started in about 1948 up until about the late 1980s. And they spent the last three decades actually decentralizing a lot of the services. And in that, they've improved uh, outcomes, they've reduced their waiting times, and they've maintained their costs pretty much where they were before. 
So a decentralized approach is far better and the evidence is there across many other health systems as well, rather than having this highly centralized nature where decision-making sits in a bureaucratic system rather than at facility level where doctors should actually be making decisions about how they deliver healthcare. So just to finish off, um, the last few points here is on the Office of Health Standards Compliance, the assessment of uh, the public sector, um, about 700-odd facilities, 730 there in the middle. Um, this was published in December 2019. It was their, last, uh, their latest um, uh, compliance uh, inspection report. We note you have a concern at the bottom right that a new measure of compliance on leadership and governance um, has only scored at 22%. It's very concerning that that is so poor. And the second worst score is operational management, also of quite substantial concern. Um, so two key issues around leadership and management uh, are the lowest scores out of these 13 measures of compliance. And we believe that this is probably where the issues in the public sector lie. It's not so much in a lack of funding, but in terms of leadership um, and operational management. Um, and if these could be addressed, we would have substantial improvements in healthcare without having to disrupt and set aside two substantial uh, systems like the NHI is proposing. To look at the um, ability of public sector to uh, deliver services in an NHI world, uh, we point out that the NHI accreditation requires, uh, requires for accreditation, both public and private sector requires an 80% plus score. And in this latest report, only 1% of public facilities actually received or achieved that score. And that wasn't just in this report, it was in both the previous two, two years' reports as well. Only 1% of facilities passed. So it's a major question as to how um, it's proposed that the public facilities are going to retain any form of revenue if they won't be allowed to contract with the NHI in an NHI world. Um, no transitional sort of arrangement has been made around that, and that is quite a concern. Um, lastly, just to point the difference between accreditation and compliance is also uh, noted here. Uh, compliance requires a 60% or higher score. Um, and we note here that 77% of these facilities are non-compliant. Some critically, 14% are critically non-compliant and 34% are non-compliant. So what is the process of getting these all these facilities to uh, scores of 80% plus in order to deliver healthcare in an NHR world. So just as an alternative as to what we feel we should, should be looked at, this I think is my, my last slide, so we should be open on time. Um, on the private side, we believe that the health market inquiry was an evidence-based and very technical assessment of the private sector and made a number of inquiries that we think we should, should be um, addressed. One of them was mandatory coverage, and we believe that is an important part for the private sector to become sustainable. Um, also, the building of low-cost benefit options, which could provide private healthcare to a much wider proportion of citizens than currently is the case. Um, we could look at VAT exemptions. We believe that's a possibility, possibly on a basket of primary care, which would then improve affordability. And then also to convert the tax credit from a tax credit to a tax subsidy. And the reason being is that the tax credit at the moment is only beneficial if uh, the person earns above the tax threshold. So a tax subsidy would be 
providing a tax subsidy towards people who also earn below the tax threshold and then make the affordability of the low-cost benefit options much better. So if we could potentially expand the private sector from 9 million to 15 million, that means that public sector has to look after less people, which means you have a budget improvement at no cost. In terms of the public sector, um, the major concerns that obviously the Zondo Commission has outlined in great detail over the last three years, um, is corruption in cadre deployment is really having a massive impact on leadership and um, in governance. And we believe that bringing back accountability and strengthening leadership in the public sector will have a massive in input, influence, and then also separating the executive from the administration. So rather deploying people based on their skills rather than political appointees. And we believe that these factors together would provide us with a much better health system than what the NHI is proposing. And thank you very much for listening in your time. Yes, honorable members, uh, I'm just <laughs> correcting myself here. Uh, I made a pitch was number four. No, no, yes, yes. Now the order is going to be in the following way. Uh, your list is wrong. Yes, I understand number eight will be together. Yes, yes. Um, and then number nine is so catch up. Honorable members, I'm so sorry, uh, just to skip and give to other uh, honorable members ahead of others. Our list, please uh, follow one after the other. I've since corrected uh, uh, the list. I've corrected myself. Thank you for that. The first uh, honorable member to make a, a contribution to honorable Ismail. Number two will be honorable uh, Shengwa. Number three will be Honorable Dr. Tembe Kwayo. Keep your numbers, please. Your number four will be Honorable Wilson. Number five will be Honorable Dr. Jacobs. Number six, Honorable Kwahube. Number seven, Honorable Munyai. Number eight, Honorable Kela. Number nine, Honorable Sokacha. Is there any other member who would like to uh, be recognized and I have left his or her number, his or her name? All of you members are there. So let me just number repeat. 10, Harvard. Number 10, Dr. Harvard. So the one that is started in this way, number one, Honorable Smile, two, Honorable Shlengwa, three, Honorable Tembegwayo, four, Honorable Wilson, five, Honorable Tata Jacobs, six, Honorable Kwahube, seven, Honorable Munai, eight, Honorable Kela, nine, Honorable Sokacha, and ten, Honorable Dr. Harvard. In that order, Honorable members come one after the other. Once the other member is finished, just come in and uh, ask your questions. Thank you. Good morning, and uh, thank you for the presentation. Uh, I just have a few questions. My first question, in your opinion, how well does the NHI focus on disease prevention in order to lower healthcare costs? My second question, we have a completely different economic climate since COVID. What would be the implications of this on the successful implementation of the NHI? My third question, in your opinion, 
what will the consequences look like to an average person seeing healthcare under the NHI five years into its implementation? So what I'm trying to say here is, should it fail, how will the average person's access to healthcare services look like? What consequences do you foresee? And what alternative choice will people actually have? My fourth question, in your slides, it, mean, it mentions that the NHI requires 80% plus compliance. Now, if the majority of healthcare facilities do not meet this, how will this affect equitable access to healthcare services? Will it create a further divide between like the rural and urban? And what implications do you foresee? My last question, in what ways, you know, uh, will the NHI impact, how will NHI impact foreign investment? Thank you, Chair. Next member. Honorable members, I read all your numbers one after the other. Once the other says thank you, Chair, it means that member is finished. Then the next member takes over. We're waiting for Marshlingwa. Marshlingwa is speaking, but it's not audible. We can't hear her. We can't hear you, Mashlingwa. Honorable Shlingwa, if you don't press a button there that says mute and mute, then you'll talk to yourself, not to us. Okay, can you go to Tota Tembegwa? You'll come back to her after somebody has assisted her with that because we can't hear you. Dr. Tembegwa, you come through. Uh, thank you, Chair. Thank you, Chairperson. I've got only one question, uh, and then uh, that that is based on uh, the the uh, assumption uh, on the fact that without evidence or uh, research based, um, the NHI will yield, and then it has got something to do with the results thereof. But I would like them to uh, ask whether they do perhaps have a comparable evidence-based research findings from other international countries that they can cite to support their statement and or argument. And then, uh, Chairperson, I, I just would like to address you to say, uh, previously you said the presentations were not sent to us. I am saying the presentations were sent to us yesterday in time and then, and then as if it's not enough, the presentations were also posted on our uh, WhatsApp group. That is the work that is done by the, our efficient secretary, Mrs. Majalamba. And then I feel you have to apologize because definitely she did her work. And you are the first recipients 
of all the emails that comes through to us. So it's very much unfair from you, Chairperson. Thank you. Thank you, Chairperson. Um, forgive me if I don't turn on my video. I'm sitting in a place that's got far too much light. Um, and I thank both Chris and Michael for the um, presentations. They are, are very intense and very thought-provoking. So my questions are as follows, and, and I think the concerns are the high expenditure of health in this country, but the fact that we have a very severe diminishing quality um, in, in, in health systems and health services. Um, and this was highlighted also by the AG in his reports of failure in governance, governance, leadership and accountability. What we are also seeing is a cut, a budget cut in the, in the next short period on infrastructure, human resources and primary health care. Now, given this, how does the NHI propose to improve health outcomes outside of more funding? And given the overall cost of the Cuban health system at more than 13% of GDP, do you think that the NHI has any structural features that will prevent it from avoiding such a cost, high cost of GDP? And we've discussed the monopoly nature of NHI. Now, with the monopoly nature of NHI, it means that the government assumes the cost of delivering health care to all citizens. What are the advantages going to be to this monopolized route as opposed to having a multi-layer system that combines private and publicly funded healthcare funders? And if SA cannot raise the dedicated health taxes to the extent of 2.9% of GDP to fund NHI, is there any point in proceeding? Because if we cannot raise the funds to implement a system, then there's no point in carrying on with the system. And we've seen this with several bills that we've had in Parliament, where the bill's proposals were, were, were reasonable. However, because there were inefficient funds to make such bills practicable, they were rejected. Um, and lastly, um, one of the... A lot of the proposals and objections we've had is to the ministerial power, the power of the minister to appoint boards um, and people to the entities associated to that board. Um, and, and I think this is going to be problematic. Um, and I don't know what you, the proposal has been that the boards should actually be appointed by parliament as opposed to the minister, and that those boards then become accountable to parliament and not to the minister. Would you agree with that statement? And lastly, do you believe, and you raised it um, briefly in your, your um, presentation, uh, that the NHI bill as it stands at present will meet constitutional muster? Will it pass in a, a, a constitutional court? I thank you, Chair. Honorable Sengwa, are you able now to come to connect? Honorable Sengwa, I'm trying you again. Okay, Honorable Dr. Jacobs, continue. Thank you, Chairperson, and thank you very much to the presenters for the presentation this morning. I have a number of questions about four chair. Uh, and the first one is that uh, whether the FMF appreciate the difference between the Section 3A 
uh, entity and, and an SOE as the uh, NHI fund is proposed to be a section entity. My second question is uh, whether the FMF is saying that it is only the alleged corruption that is undermining constraints in the public sector and it's nothing to do with underfunding. My third question is um, just a moment, Chair. I just need to look at readiness. Your your critique of the Cuban health expenditure omits to posit this against health outcomes and the performance of the health system. You will be reminded that according to the OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the United States has the highest health spending with one of the worst performing health systems. Now, Cuba spends 11.2% of their GDP and 15.2% of uh, general expenditure. Um, is it not feasible that because of the low GDP in Cuba, that the figure that explains the expenditure, uh, that that would explain the expenditure which you uh, are questioning? And my last question, Chair, is, um, is the FMF in agreement with the findings of the health market inquiry that health care costs in the private sector have spiraled out of the affordability of South Africans? What will deregulation do to this uh, spiraling cost? Thank you, Jefferson. Thank you, Chair. Um, thank you very much for the presentation. Uh, and a number of my colleagues are, are, are have covered and continue to cover the, 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 the details around what the FMF have um, presented. But I think what I would like to do and uh, what I would really like to, 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 to pick their brain on, and of course, because they make these presentations so that we can go back and panel beat a piece of legislation that could work. Um, and that could address a lot of the issues that have been uh, raised today and in other presentations. And the big, in, in my view, the, the, the big um, uh, predicament we find ourselves in in South Africa is, um, is obviously the, the deep inequality which exists around access and access, not just access, but access to quality care. So, you know, and as the, as, as the presenter has said, you know, there are an, a number of reasons why this is the case. How then, you know, would, would, would the foundation, in their view, uh, advise lawmakers in terms of how do you design a piece of legislation or the governance and say we meet all the governance issues and the constitutionality matters that have been raised the valid ones and concerns that have been raised. How do we design a health system um, and how do we design legislation that will give rise to a health system that is both making sure that you don't decimate one industry over another, but that you make sure that whoever you are in the country, you are able to access quality care. If the issue is not funding, um, and 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 as you've proven that you know various countries are spending just as much or even more or less or whatever the case may be in terms of healthcare, what is the what is the 
you know, what it, what needs to be done? What is the overhaul that needs to happen in this piece of legislation? Because I think that's the big fundamental question that this portfolio committee needs to ask itself. What do we go back and do so that we can fix what's broken and not necessarily exacerbate what's the problem? Because if we are wanting to say that all South Africans must have access to quality health care, regardless of where they are in society, what then, and I can appreciate there's no silver bullet, but what are the key three things we need to make sure that our legislation has that currently the bill in its draft form may not have? Thank you. Honorable Chair, thank you very much for an opportunity. I think I have about five questions, there are not many. Uh, my first question uh, is the following. Does the FMF support the health as a public good, not as a free market tradable commodity? That is my first question. The, the second one will be, uh, do the FMF agree that South Africans should get the health services they, they need as per section 27 of the constitution? Uh, here also keeping in mind that section 27 also calls on government, uh, open code, to take reasonable legislative and other measures, close quote, to achieve this. My other question, uh, Honorable Chair, it is uh, the following. Uh, in addition to the question, the universal health coverage from uh, your understanding means different health coverage benefits for different income groups. Coverage can be different from the poor, middle, middle income, etc. On saying that there has, there has not been a public participation, is the uh, FMF saying that the NHI process did not follow the regulated process of legislation development, legislation development. What do you say about the green paper, white paper, and the NHI bill process? That started in 2011. My other question, Honorable Chair, uh, the presenter, uh, 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 said, uh, now put forward the, the, the graph of the, uh, of the office health standard, office of the health standard. So do you think that the assessment of the office, do you think that the, the assessment of the office of the health standard is irre it's, it's, it's relevant, it's irrelevant? Don't you think that the office of the the assessment of the Office of Health Standard is relevant in the context of the two-tier system. Uh, because uh, if you, uh, largely because if you look at the two-tier system, for instance, it is dominated uh, by the health. Those that have really medical scheme, like uh, Kinaki, Infinity Insurance and Medi Medi uh, Mediguide, 
just to mention a few who are benefiting a lot of month a lot of month a lot of uh, uh, money from the from the public uh, public press and also in the public in general so don't you think that assessment is irrelevant in the context of what NHI bill seeks to achieve thank you exactly to solve that problem thank you Chairperson, I'm back. Let me, Honorable Kela, hold on, shame. Let me give Mama Shengwa a space now that she's back. Press that button, Mama Shengwa, all the time when you come back again. (laughs) Let me welcome the presentation from the Free Market Foundation. The Free Market Foundation appears to oppose NHI at all costs by giving us all sorts of reasons why it will never work in South Africa. While some may, may want to believe that the reality is that there is an increasing gap between those who can afford private health care and those who cannot. There is a need for NHI so that everyone is the same access. Does the Free Market Foundation believe that its alternative proposal will bring about the level of equality in access to healthcare that is proposed by the NHI, or it does not believe in such equality at all. Thank you. Thank you. Honorable Kela, uh, we can now take you. Uh, thank you very much, Chairperson. Uh, I'm having a few questions that I want to ask uh, the presenter. Uh, my first question, Chair, um, I, that I want to check with the presenter, uh, what is the view of the FMF on principle of equality, justice, uh, fairness, and social solidarity. And my other question, what is the position of the FMF on uh, redress of the past uh, injustice that the bill is uh, stating in its objects it is aiming to address? Uh, My other question uh, that will be... uh, and my last question, Chairperson, uh, 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 which uh, countries in the world have a completely untreated un- un- uh, market? Uh, will this work in a country where inequality is a, a high as SA? Do you take this into consideration? Uh, who represent the market in SA? in South Africa. Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Chairperson. Um, I've also got a few questions. The first one, uh, Honorable Chair, is uh, how can we ensure a more equitable distribution of health workers and service availability when the prices and wages paid in the private sector and so much higher than in the public sector. 
The second question, Honorable Chairperson, can the Free Market Foundation indicate to the committee a country or countries that achieve universal health coverage through vouchers? And the third question, Honorable Chairperson, is the Free Market Foundation support the current 8.5% total health spending of GDP as appropriate? And then the last question, Honorable Chairperson, which countries in the world have a complete unfettered market? Will this work in a country where inequality is as high as in South Africa? Do you take this into consideration? That is the the Free Market Foundation. Does they take this into consideration? Who represents the market in South Africa? Thank you very much, Honorable Chairperson. Okay. Is that a Um, Okay, Uh, thank you, Chair. I have two questions for presenter. Number one, do you believe that the amount and quality of health care that someone gets should depend on their medical need or on their ability to pay for it? Second one, can FMF explain where they got the figure of 8.5% total health spending on GDP as expenditure proposed for NHI. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, May I, have we exhausted all the members who would like to ask? Okay, may I? uh, add on to your basket of questions, uh, honorable members. Uh, the first one is that um, we have a, a report from the Health Market Inquiry uh, that indicates clearly about what actually is health costs in the country. Uh, and it is spiraling extremely, I'm going to be quoting some of the examples here uh, in private healthcare sector. And it is at a level where it is probably not going to be affordable now and they are actually making certain very strong suggestions on that health market inquiry uh, it would be interesting to know what is your view having started that report which i hope you have now the second part there is universal evidence everywhere in the world whether you are looking in china us or anywhere in europe that fee for service medicines drives up costs astronomically I'll give an example even here at home. If you do main medical circumcision in a private health, in a, in a public hospital, uh, all the consumables, including the time of a doctor and the anesthetist, uh, is estimated to be a thousand rand. If you do that in a private health facility, it's seven thousand rand. It's not two thousand rand. It's not three. It's seven thousand rand. And uh, it also therefore has also. A, a situation where it induces unnecessary service fee. Another very close point, which we asked some other uh, uh, presenters in this space, which you then want to say, 
you need to reconcile with me that all public hospitals, all of them, it's one of the things that you strive to go and check when they meet them. All public hospitals, they strive to keep the cessation the rate at about 35%. If they go to 40, it's an alarm for that hospital. You just check what is the cause of that. And some of them will tell you we are a quaternary service, a tertiary hospital, therefore we receive from the districts and all that. But on average, all private hospitals are happy to have a cesarean section rate of 80%. I would hope that you won't say that is, that is in the name of quality, where all women who, who deliver in private hospitals suddenly must all of them be sectioned uh, to deliver their babies and, and go a route. If it was not to say, if you do deliver normally, I am an obstetrician in the private healthcare sector, I'm going to get a reward a benefit of 2,000 rand. But if I were to uh, do a cesarean section on this woman, I'm going to really go to 10,000 rand and I probably would therefore prefer to go and get a 10,000 rand. So I want us to be able to compare apples and apples and not saying uh, there's everything good this side and everything bad on this side. My last question, I, I would wish that uh, you probably comment on your readings of the definition of the universal health coverage as, as proposed by the former DG of the, of the World Health Organization, that, uh, uh, an organization that you have quoted very well, because I do find that what you think uh, it's your universal health coverage definition differs significantly with that of Dr. Margaret Chen, by the way, a leader who's espousing the universal health coverage worldwide and who's actually motivating and actually asking countries to consider this route. And she explains what is the implication of universal coverage. And she gives reasons. Now, on your slide eight, you talk about near universal access. Now, being a medical doctor, I don't have such terminology. You're either pregnant or you are not pregnant. You can't be near pregnant. Now, this near universal access is confusing me even more. I would have I would need to be explained what is the definition of near universal access because it doesn't say that you have universal access and it doesn't say you don't have, it's just say you are nearing it, near universal access. Please assist us to understand some of the things you have raised with us. Thank you. You can then give us your responses. Thanks. Jim, I just make two questions, please. Okay. May I then take that post? It may just be the last round. Any other member? Okay, take two questions and follow up. Thank you, Chair. I just want to make certain of this out-of-pocket um, expenditure which uh, the presenter had spoken about. Now, in South Africa, it is a regressive funding mechanism. In other words, meaning that it, uh, it imposes greater hardship or a greater burden as a of uh, household income and proxied by household consumption expenditure on the poorest households. However, as medical scheme members, which are ma mainly in the, uh, the richest 40% of the population, make large out-of-pocket payments, it, this translates into a higher burden of out-of-pocket 
payments for the group, and then of course in total expenditure of for the for the healthcare, um, and and then for the middle twenty percent of the households. So generally, what I'm asking is, you know, we need to factor in the out-of-pocket uh, costs, which are quite astronomical for those who are on medical aid. And, and that in itself is a burden onto the people who, who are then members of the medical aid. And my very last uh, question, Chair, and uh, it also relates to that, is um, how would the introduction of low-cost schemes materially increase the health coverage of the population? Now, it is said that 9 to 15 million increase in coverage would be achieved uh, by adding the low-cost schemes, um, but it would imply, therefore, that 45 million people would still have to be covered by the public health system, which in itself is not sustainable at this time and also into the future. Thank you, Chair. Honorable members, I allowed Dr. Chikos because uh, there may not be any other space for a follow-up in this uh, uh, session. May I take if there's any other pressing question from any member so that they answer once off. Uh, we will not be able to have a second round in this session. Okay, if none, uh, we will then take their responses. That would be the last part. Thank you. Can start Mr. Sitters or Mr. Hutting, whoever will uh, assist us. Thank you, Dr. Glover. Um, yeah, okay, so quite a lot of questions. I've uh, tried to make notes as best as possible, but I think I'm going to have to ask uh, some of the committee members just to refresh me. Uh, um, on the first question, um, I know there, there was a question around disease prevention. Um, and I, I think the question was that if the NHR would, would, it, would it address that? Um, I do think that a focus on primary care would uh, would assist in terms of disease prevention. I think it's a fairly universally accepted uh, principle in health systems that prevention is, is far better than cure. And many systems are spending much more focus around um, preventing. Um, the other question was uh, in terms of NHR and implementation, and if it fails, what would be the consequences? Um, I think obviously the, the obvious issue about building a system like NHR where it's a monopoly system um, is monopolization obviously means that that's the only system anyone, any um, citizen can rely on. And it does have a weakness in that if it does fail, then there are no alternatives because alternatives have been legislated out. Um, so that, that is a concern. Um, the other question was on the Office of Health Standards Compliance and the 80% score and what would be done to get uh, facilities to comply. I mean, I think that that really talks to the issues that we feel in the public sector need to be addressed too, because if we improve the quality of care, we'll improve those scores and then obviously those facilities would be able to, to contract with the NHR. And then um, the question, the last question, I think from the first uh, um set of questions was about foreign investment. I do think the nature of the NHR would, uh, uh, I think it would deter foreign investment. The nature of it in nationalizing private health sector, I think is of concern. Um, so I do think it would have an effect on that. 
Um, I didn't get to the second set of questions. I've, I've, fortunately, I've lost those notes. Uh, if the person, committee member, could please uh, um, restate or re-ask that, and uh, myself or Chris will try and answer that. Not the chair. You want us to ask all the questions? No, no just, uh, just the second. Uh, um, yeah, if you could just uh, cap on that question again, please. The second one. And please try to note the question through the chair. Yeah. Who, who, who has to assist you by doing the question again? Honorable Munai and who? Uh, Dr. Glamour, unfortunately, I, I, didn't, I didn't hear who who the second question came from, and I couldn't see it on the thing. So I think if that person, if the committee, honorable committee member could just uh, please provide that question again. I think I think chairperson is referring to uh, Marsh Langer, who we could not hear either at that time. Oh, okay. All right. Answer those questions. Umamushlenga will then uh, write it, answer those that you can, that you, you had well. That one, I'm going to follow up with Mama Shengwa and see how we can assist here. Yes. Okay. Um, I think then if I could, uh, I don't remember Jacobs had a few questions there that I could uh, I could have a look at. Um, um, the question was, is it corruption that is the main problem in the public sector? I do think that that is probably the biggest cause of the failures. Um, and I think if those are addressed, then I think the public sector would be performing much, much better than what it is now. Um, the other question was on the health market inquiry, and do I agree that the private sector is very expensive? Yes, it is very expensive. I think the HMI was quite um, was quite uh, detailed on that. Um, I think the private sector could do much better in terms of the proposals that are in the HMI. Um, so I, I would agree with that, yes. Um, on the out-of-pocket question, um, uh, out-of-pocket Costs are regressive. Yes, I agree that they are. Um, many national health systems attempt to uh, um, create means tests within the system so that um, benefits are not necessarily equitable uh, from a point of view that um, out-of-pocket costs would say be minimized for the lowest income members in the system. So that's, that is how often many of the systems address that. So that it's generally the wealthier will pay higher out-of-pocket costs and the poorer will pay either lower or no out-of-pocket costs. Um, Mr. Sitas, just pause there a bit. Umam uh, has had her, con her connectivity has now improved. I would like her to pause her question again. Honorable okay. Shengwa, come again. Honorable Chair, number two. Okay. Uh, Honorable Chair. Honorable Chair. Honorable Chair, can we hear yes, me? I've given this space to Mama Shema for now to answer, to ask her question. Yes. Chairperson, the Free Market Foundation appears to oppose NHI at all costs by giving us all sorts of reasons why it will never work in South Africa. While some may want to believe that 
the reality is that there is an increasing gap between those who can afford private health care and those who cannot. There is a need for NHI so that everyone has the same access. Does the Free Market Foundation believe that its alternative proposal will bring about the level of equality in access to health care that is proposed by the NHI? Or it does not believe in such equality at all? Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Madam Chair. Honorable Munai, you were coming in again. No, no, he never complained that he didn't hear about me. When he arrived at that moment, if he didn't hear, I will, I will, I will ask okay. my questions. All right, yeah. yeah okay. Continue, uh, Mr. Sitters. Uh, thank you, Honorable Chair. Um, yes, okay, to, to answer Honorable Shingwa's question there. Um, obviously, we would believe in an equality of care to, uh, to citizens. Um, I think the, the aspect is that... Um, when we talk about universal health coverage and how it is structured within countries, um, countries would generally build a basic package of care. And that basic package of care would then be delivered to all citizens on an equal footing, but it doesn't necessarily have to be through a monopoly single payer structure. It could be with multiple payer structures, but at a national level, the package is defined. And that is the basic package that needs to be delivered across the country to all citizens. In many cases, it could be privately funded um, by persons willing to pay for care for themselves, or it could be publicly funded. And in various levels, and as I spoke to the previous question on Honourable Jacobs about the out-of-pocket, even within a structure like that, um, the uh, the level of their co-payments could be structured um, to favor, to be reduced for um, lower income members to improve their access. Um, I think if I could then address the questions to um, Honourable Guarubi. Um, I think the questions there were um, about separating the executive from the administration. I think that would be a, a big step in terms of the public sector so that there are people appointed based not on, um, on political affiliation, but rather in terms of um, uh, actual skill. <clears throat> Uh, removal of corruption certainly that would, um, I think, make a massive imp- have a massive impact on the public sector. Um, implementation of HMR, do we believe it should be? I think I think it's very much evidence based. The HMR, the Health Market Inquiry, and I think that there's a, there's a lot of good work that was done in that. I think could assist the private sector substantially. Um, and then I think that the last question was um, around the monopoly structure. The, concerns that we would have with the NHR nature um, is its monopolized nature and that the, the features of all monopolies in the world, wherever they are, it's, it's almost, it is absolutely universal, is that monopolies increase costs and reduce quality. So um, that is a major concern around the, the NHR proposal. <clears throat> and I'm going to move on to um, Honorable Gela, who uh, posed the issue about uh, equality in the system, whether we believe in equality, I do think that we probably addressed that with um, 
Honorable Schlengwer's uh, question and answer to that, that we would we believe in equality of a basic standing package that the country could uh, could implement across both the public and the private sector. Um, the next question I have then that I can answer is to Honorable uh, Harvard, Honorable Member Harvard. Um, the eight and a half percent of GDP um, that was was I think it was universal through the green and the white papers. Both white papers, so that number's been carried through from there. And that's where that, that number comes from. Um, and then the other question was um, <clears throat> on an ability to pay. And I think, again, that we could say that uh, most health systems do structure their benefits um, or the contributions in it on an ability place so that it's a more progressive system. So the higher income earners would contribute more either through general taxes or dedicated taxes to a system like that. Um, and then lastly, the last question that I think I'm able to answer now, I know there were more, uh, but I think for uh, to the Honourable Chair, Dr. Glomer, um, the HMR did just highlight the high private costs. I think our private sector is, is very expensive. Um, I think it has a, a number of structural uh, weaknesses and problems that can be addressed um, through the health market inquiry recommendations. Um, on the question of fee-for-service, uh, I think it's universal around the world. Fee-for-service systems are renowned for, um, for pushing up costs and doctors' behaviour changes in them, uh, in that they, it's more a case of um, getting as many uh, treatments through as possible rather than focusing on the quality of the outcome. Um, the C-section rates in the private sector, yes, they are very high. And I think I think South Africa's private sector might be unique in the world. I'd have need to double check that. But our rates, I think, are considered to be amongst the highest in the world. And it is obviously a concern that it, that it is that, um, that high. And then in terms of the definition of universal health coverage, um, I think to uh, an extent... But uh, again, on through Honourable uh, Schlengler and through Honourable Geller, we some answered on that question that universal healthcare is usually defined as access to a universal basic package of care that countries uh, develop and establish uh, according to their needs and according to their affordability levels. Um, and then the next question was, what, what is the definition of near universal health coverage? Um, to be honest, I don't know, but that was the quote from, that was actually quoted out of the Health Market Inquiry, where they stated that South Africa already provides near universal access. So I think they're saying that the vast majority of citizens have access to, to care. Uh, I'm not sure as to which section they possibly are saying do not, so I can't unfortunately expand further on that. So, Honourable Chair, I think those are the questions that I am able to answer at this stage. Um, I don't think I've covered all of them, but if we could possibly look at um, if those Honourable Members possibly repeating those questions, and then I'll try to address them as best I can. Um, Honourable Members, we are running, uh, we have in fact run out of time, but if there's a member who feels that um, there's a question that he or she has not been attended to, uh, can do two things. We follow up or we can quickly ask it now, but it won't be more than three members who can ask that. Uh, follow know. up, Honorable Chair. 
Yeah. Any other member would like to get his okay question clarified again? Okay? Honorable Munyai. Okay, only 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 Honorable Munyai. Okay, let's get it done. Um, I hope this time around they, they they will be able to note. The first question is: Does the Free Market Foundation support health as a public good, not as a free market tradable commodity? That's the first one. Do you agree that all South Africans... You'll only have two, Honorable Munai. That would be the last one, yeah. It's fine. It's fine. Do you agree that all South Africans should get health services they need as per Section 27 of the Constitution? Here also keeping in mind that Section 27... uh, also calls for on calls on government open code to take measurable legislative and other measures close code to achieve this um yeah that that is my my question honorable chair yes another one i left them because it was not uh, answered by the free market foundation Mr. Sitas, only less than two minutes. Thank you, Honourable Chair. Um, to Honourable Munyai, um, yes, I think we do support health as a, as a public good. Um, and I think the issue would be, or the, the perspective would be that uh, the country defines a basic package of care that all South Africans um, could access so that the access is universal. And then on the last point of Section 27, I think I would like to highlight on that that it does state that the country should um, make available uh, health services on a progressive basis, but it also emphasises within available resources. And I think that's the part that the proposal, the NHI proposal, is not sort of aligning to is within available resources because it is looking to improve to increase um, expenditure in the public sector very substantially. Thank you, Dr. Chair, uh, Honourable Chair, Dr. Dlomer. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, we actually would have uh, loved, you can see the appetite members have to engage with you, but we have allocated this amount of time. Uh, we would love to continue engaging with you and we'll use the, this uh, arrangement that now we know who you are, where you are, in case we would like to uh, continue engaging because as a portfolio committee we would want to be uh, taking every consideration brought to us in re- in refining and finalizing this bill uh, before we take it back to the house thank you very much for our participation uh, we'll keep in touch thank you honorable thank chair thank you chair thank we you. really appreciate it go oh, well mr hatton uh, honorable members, you will be stretching your legs as we take the next presentation. We were over time, but uh, we will still give the next presenter the allocated 45 minutes. We might have to squeeze our time later for lunch. Uh, it's an organization called BUSA, uh, abbreviated as BUSA. Uh, they will indicate who they are and what is their. Let me just check. Yes. Uh, it's a presentation by Business Unity South Africa. You were supposed to start at 11.30. And now we are starting at 11.46, uh, 11.48. Yeah. Uh, we'll give you that time back to yourself.
Honorable uh, Munai, uh, maybe you can lower your hand for now so that I could know the hands for the next meeting, uh, next presentation. Tim from the Business Unit of South Africa, the slot is yours now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chairperson, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to present before you uh, as a follow-up to the uh, written submission we gave to the Portfolio Committee on the 29th of November 2019. Let me introduce myself. My name is Kes Kavadia. I'm Chief Executive Officer of Business Unity South Africa. I'm going to go through some introductory slides uh, before we go into detail on some of our positioning related to this bill. Uh, and, and, and I will then hand over to a couple of colleagues to actually do that. Uh, the first slide I'm not going to spend too much time on. We are what, the biggest business organization in the country. We uh, represent in excess of 350,000 employers, probably about 95% of the economy. Uh, we have sought views from both our health sector members, uh, as well as the wider constituency comprising industry bodies and employers with responsibility for workers across the whole economy. And as I said, to thank you for this opportunity, and this follows our presentation, our uh, document to you on the in November 2019. Uh, the contents of our presentation, uh, seen on next slide, I'll give some introductory remarks. Then we've done some research on this and Stavros Nikolaou, who's on the BUSA board, will uh, give uh, an input in that. Our main points at the level of principle will also be given by Stavros. And the lessons COVID-19 has taught us, uh, I think it is very opportune, I guess, in the word that we are considering the NHI bill in the midst of a health crisis. So Dr. Ayanda Nsoluba, who's also from BUSA, will, will uh, give us some thoughts on that. Stavros will then put forward our recommendations and our concluding remarks by Martin Kingston, uh, who is the Deputy President of BUSA. We are going to go through about these slides, but we've also sent you detailed recommendations from our point of view on amendments that we believe would be useful in the bill. We're not going to go through those, Chair. Uh, those are for your information and consideration and we would be available to talk to you about those at your convenience. So right up front, we support government's policy objectives. The policy objectives we are trying to meet through the board. One, and which we believe are progressive universalism to address inequality. And we're saying progressive because we do see this as a process. Uh, this is going to take time to reach universal healthcare, but we agree with the principle. Mandatory membership and prepayment for sustainability is one of the other, our understanding of the policy objectives and financial risk protection to ensure access to needed care. We support the implementation of the NHI fund and our inputs aim to highlight the risks of execution that may ultimately undermine these policy objectives. So let's be quite clear. 
we are supportive of the fund. We are supportive of the policy objectives that we believe you want to meet. What we want to raise are issues that we believe could uh, uh, undermine these policy objectives, if not appropriately dealt with. And we would obviously want to engage with you on those even beyond today. We believe that the policy needs to be implemented in a way that is inclusive, affordable, and sustainable. And, and some of points related to that, that it should be a multi-funded dispensation, that access to a minimum package of healthcare services for all South Africans must be our goal. We need to share the operational load of providing the care between the public and private health sector. And I'll go into that just now, but, but we, we believe that that is a, an essential element of implementation. And we need to have phased implementation to avoid concentration of operational risk and unintended consequences. So we recognize, as I've said, the principles underpinning the proposed NHI, and they give expression to the public policy, ob policy objective of equitable access to healthcare as a social economic right under our constitution. So we recognize the constitutional imperative for equitable access to healthcare. And, and, and we want to be clear about that. We believe the contribution of universal access to healthcare needs to be fair, it needs to promote human dignity, and it needs to enable economic productivity. Uh, we can't consider this if we if an impact of this is going to be uh, an, a negative impact on our economy and our productivity. So the two go hand in hand. We believe this objective can be advanced in various ways and involves health services delivery and standards of care, investment in infrastructure, human resource mobilization, and financing arrangements amongst others. And these are all important and these need to be seen together in a holistic fashion. A critical founding assumption of our commitment to NHI is that society agrees to share the costs of providing universal access to necessary and appropriate health services, which are essential to the well-being and dignity of all. This forms part of our broader commitment to advancing comprehensive social protection. We also believe that the committee needs to appreciate that we are not starting from scratch. South Africa has excellent, excellent medical and health science faculties in our universities. We have well-established hospitals and specialist practice in both the public and private sectors. Pharmaceutical and other medical suppliers and distributors are efficient and professional. We have an extensive network of public clinics, GP practices, and pharmacies for primary care delivery. And we believe all of these are a platform on which the NHI must be built and have got to be essential elements of the NHI. We believe that the objective and progression of the NHI will best be achieved if we adopt an inclusive approach to narrow the gaps between rural and urban areas and be between public and private providers. 
through the evolving role of public health services, medical schemes, health administrators, and private sector health service providers. We are in this together and we need to work together to actually achieve what the NHI wants to achieve. And so this requires an inclusive and collaborative approach, drawing on our country's collective skills and resources. We are concerned, Chair, Chair, that, that uh, sorry, sorry. We are concerned that there is no document that we have seen as part of this process from National Treasury on what we think will be probable fiscal implications and associated implications for the money ball. We, this is a massive exercise. This will need a great deal of funding, uh, not just from the public sector. If we all work together on this, it's going to need a greater fund, great deal of funding and we need to work together on this. But we believe Treasury has got to be involved in considering the probable fiscal impacts and the impact on the money bill. And we would certainly urge the committee to engage with Treasury to get them involved in this. We also believe that South Africa has the opportunity to incorporate its entire health infrastructure and build on the strength, assets, and capabilities of both the public and private sectors. I referred to that earlier, just stressing that. We also know that government has not yet responded to the recommendations of the health market inquiry regarding the proposed operational reforms, which were developed through an extensive and robust process and have the potential to enhance efficiencies with immediate benefits in healthcare funding and delivery. Mm -hmm. We believe government should be responding to this. And again, it's something we'd like to engage with you on going forward. I've said we support the NHI bill. However, we have identified certain critical and serious concerns and risks that may potentially impede successful implementation and achievement of the your government's health policy objectives. And in the rest of our document, which we, after this presentation, the second part of our document, which we're not going to go through, we are submitting several constructive uh, drafting considerations in this regard for the committee's review. I'll now ask Tevros to take us through the research findings. Thank you, Chair. Kaz, thanks very much. Uh, Honorable Chairperson of the committee, honorable members, uh, good afternoon. And thanks very much for the opportunity to build on Kaz's uh, earlier introduction. Uh, in the interest of uh, quality of sound, I'm going to go off camera, if that's okay. Um, and as, as Kaz indicated, um, I'll be covering the research element that's informed the, the position uh, that Business Unity South Africa has taken with respect to supporting the bill, but also, as Kaz mentioned, highlighting some of the concerns and the risks. Uh, as we have done as a country during the COVID pandemic and crisis, we've adopted very much a, a scientific and an empirically-led approach to all the interventions we, that we have taken during COVID-19, we believe similarly an empirical and research-driven approach should be 
adopted in analyzing the NHR bill in its present form. Of course, the, the research elements that we have conducted have covered a number of areas uh, and inter alia speak, because we are a business-led organization, speak, of course, to one of the major concerns that investors keep raising in our country, that area of policy uncertainty. So our approach in the research that we've undertaken, uh, aside from looking to strengthening the bill and addressing some of the risks and concerns that CAS has raised, would also speak to things like how do, how would we be viewed from a policy perspective with investors and other uh, business considerations? Of course, Martin Kingston, the deputy president of BUSA, will comment on those towards the end of the presentation as well. So we, we conducted inter alia three sets of, uh, of, of research um, these are the three grey blocks that appear before you. So the first bit of research was conducted by, by Insight, and that looked to speak to uh, the unique disease burden and understanding the disease patterns that any NHR system would have to underpin. Um, so that was the first set of research. The, the second uh, set was uh, undertaken by FTI, and FTI looked at uh, the various funding and or financing budgetary and expenditure trends globally. Uh, there's a lot that's been said and written about our own country's uh, uh, expenditure on health vis-a-vis uh, -vis GDP, so the 8.5% uh, GDP and the split thereof um, it was important for us, I think, to put that under the microscope, microscope relative to other low-middle-income low, low countries. And that's what we've done through that second bit of research uh, conducted by FTI, as I said. And then the third grade block looked at uh, another significant element to, to any healthcare system our country would adopt, and that is the human capital and healthcare resourcing in the in, in, in both the private and the public sectors. Um, I will summarize at the end what has come out of this research, but uh, suffice to say for for the moment that um, the, the the inputs that have been underpinned by the research um, do demonstrate, of course, that our country has a specific and unique set of challenges and that a blended approach, um, which incorporates some of best global practice, as well as some of the idiosyncrasies or uniqueness of our own system need to be arrived at as the best possible solution moving forward. We of course, uh, and this has come out in the research and Kaz has alluded to this as well, have a unique fiscal challenge in our country and of course, these, these fiscal challenges very often speak to how you attract investment into the country and how your investment grading is, is constituted. And of course, we all know without economic growth, without investment, we cannot build the tax base that we need to fund NHR and various other socioeconomic uh, challenges that our country needs to, uh, needs to confront. Um, 
sorry, just go back to that slide. Uh, just the very last point I want to make um, is at, at the risk of being repetitive here, but I do need to underscore this. Um, the, the findings of this research are also indicative that whilst one can look around the world to try and import models that work in other low-income or uh, middle-income and emerging markets, I think we do need to flag that we have got a unique set of circumstances in our country, and that needs to be considered in any system moving forward, healthcare system, that is. Okay, next slide. Okay, the, let me unpack the three grey blocks, as I mentioned earlier, um, the three sets of research that we undertook. So this is the first set, of course, summarised. All of this research is available. We've shared it at, at NEDLAC. We'd be very happy to share it in any other forum. Our written submissions uh, alluded significantly to this. And, of course, we're happy to make any uh, post-parliamentary uh, hearing uh, written documentation available. This, this particular slide demonstrates the, as I was saying, the unique disease burden of our country. And, and you can see our disease burden in the extreme left as, as quantified in, uh, in dailies or disability adjusted life years per 100,000 population. And you can have a look at how this compares to other peer countries that we would consider with, uh, with similar challenges to our country. And you, you, what this is starting to demonstrate to us is that our country already has a, a high communicable disease burden. But of course, there's an emerging trend that started emerging over the last five to 10 years that we are drifting to a significant growth in non-communicable diseases the prevalence of which is concerning. And of course, put more plainly and bluntly, um, our disease burden is characterized by a quadruple burden of communicable diseases such as HIV and TB, maternal and child-related diseases, trauma, and then non-communicable diseases that are rising tide in our country at the moment. Um, there is, of course, and the research has demonstrated this, a shift in the relative weighting of these. And I guess the take-home message from this particular slide is that uh, our healthcare system requires a response and appropriate capacity and adequate capacity that would strengthen the healthcare system to accommodate this changing picture as it continues to emerge. Next slide. This was the second uh, bit of research, as I was saying, that was carried out. This was carried out by FTI. Um, this is an important slide because we speak a lot about the contribution of healthcare vis-a-vis uh, -vis GDP and expenditure terms. And uh, you'll, you'll note from this slide that uh, uh, South Africa is the red, the red curve. Um, the the darker blue uh, curve is, is high-income countries. The, um, the green, I don't know what color this is. It's like an aquamarine color. Just beneath that is your upper-middle-income countries. And then you've got your lower-middle-income countries. And then the yellow, which is the green curve, the yellow curve 
is your low-income countries. And of course, South Africa is the red curve. And you can see that as um, public expenditure and healthcare as a percentage of total spend, you can see South Africa straddles somewhere in, in the middle. So what is this showing us in more granular terms? It's showing us that South African public expenditure and healthcare compares well, um, and it's not unusual when compared to other middle income countries to have around 50% of your healthcare spend in the private sector. It's not an unusual picture if we compare this against peer countries and in global terms. It also demonstrated no low or middle income countries, LMRCs as we call them, have adopted a single funding approach that came out in the, in the research um, and, I, and I think goes to a core of how we best optimize the spend uh, and funding in our country in healthcare. It also demonstrated that all countries reviewed, uh, reviewed in the INSIGHT study that was conducted allows private insurers to operate in conjunction with publicly funded cover. And no country has, according to the research, uh, has attempted to outlaw private uh, cover. Of course, a critical finding of all of this is that in the absence of insurance, the balance from private funding sources or out of pocket, as we say, increases. And this is a highly regressive approach to managing the situation. So put, uh, put differently in terms of this slide as a conclusion, um, what this is demonstrating to us is that um, any, any gaps in, in the insured segment will be filled by out-of-pocket exp out expenditure, which is, which is highly regressive. And what we should rather be looking to do is optimize private expenditure um, by, by better managing the private-public cross-subsidy. Um, furthermore, um, it, it is poignant, I think, to mention that the, the private expenditure piece, the 50% odd of the total expenditure, um, has demonstrated a number of structural inefficiencies. So Bursa is very clear that the current private sector mechanism contains structural inefficiencies, but by the same token, the public sector has an inefficient application of resourcing. So there, there are problems in both the private and the public sector. And that is why any research and or intervention needs to be considered in the eyes or the optics of the HMR report. And the HMR report has not been considered to the best of our knowledge and would require uh, careful consideration off the back of what we would consider a social compact, which strengthens and plays to the, um, the, the, the particular strengths of the private and the public sector as a collective. Next slide. Mr. Mr. Nicola, Mr. Yes. Nicola uh, you, I noticed that your presentation has got 35 slides. Yes. You are spending on average three and a half minutes per slide. Now you will not complete it if you do it that way. Three and a half minutes that you spend per slide then your time is not going to allow you to come to an end. Can you maybe try and improve that? 
No, I, I, I will. I'll be both private and public efficient, uh, Honourable Chair, and I will speed up. There were just those slides I needed to emphasise. So I think the next ones will go a lot quicker. Okay, so if, if I may um, move to the next slide, uh, Honourable Chair, um, part of the research of the FTR document um, that we thought was important to lift out, and it speaks to Section 33 of the Bill, um, and uh, particularly the shift of cost of medical schemes, if you were to shift those into the public sector, according to the benefits um, that are currently set out in the bill. So if you were to look at just the primary health care and the maternity care aspect of that, um, we, we've got a lower bound estimate and a higher bound estimate, um, but that would give you a range just in long primary and maternity care, if you were to lift that out of the private sector and put that into the public sector at current levels, that would give you a range of 40 to 70 billion rand that would have to be moved into, uh, into the public sector. And of course, the cost of, uh, of care to providing these covered lives would consume an additional 33 billion, just by way of example. And I think that speaks to how we propose some of the solutions, but I think important um, that we flag this as a, a realistic scenario. Next slide. Okay. Let me move to the last bit of the research that was done, and, and that was research aimed at um, both the facilities and infrastructure, and then of course, personnel and human capital um, again, all the honourable members will be acquainted with the situation, but this demonstrates that um, over a 40-year period from 1970 to 2010, of course, the population of our country has doubled from 25 to 50 million. It's now sitting at 60 million a decade after 2010 or when this research happened. And we can see a, a trend, a very concerning trend, of course, public sector beds have declined by 25%, but yet the population has, has doubled. Of course, this places additional strain on, on the infrastructure, um, healthcare infrastructure country. And the point that we wanted to flag here is that, of course, our, our infrastructure requires a significant boost, which means investors and investment coming into the sector and uh, anything that we put forward would have to also speak to uh, investors' concerns and, and, and uh, getting a, a system where investors are going to want to invest to boost the much-needed infrastructure that is required in, uh, in healthcare at the moment. Uh, also, just to flag the point, because um, it has been raised, monopsony purchasing um, doesn't always optimize pricing. I think that's also been demonstrated uh, around the world and very often multi-payer systems uh, realize better or more optimal pricing. That cannot be divorced from the infrastructure requirements either as a way of consideration. Next slide. Okay, then the last bit of research in that third gray block that I referred to was the human capital aspect. And of course, the honorable members will be well acquainted. I'm not gonna, with, the, uh, with these slides, I'm not gonna spend too much time on them. 
other than to say we know that there's a dire shortage of health professionals um, using any comparison we want globally, the, we, we know that, that there is a dire shortage. So the overall shortages compared to other target countries need to be addressed. Shortages in particular refer to disciplines such as anaesthetists, peds, surgeons, and the likes thereof. We also know the cost of filling these posts is estimated at 10 billion rand per annum. And uh, there is an ongoing need for training and retaining of, of our scarce health, uh, health human capital in the country. The, the, the bill, of course, again, as I referred to, would expect monopsony power of the fund to persuade doctors to increase their workloads. Um, either for the same or lower remuneration. That's what the research has shown us. And we, we're not convinced that this will address the healthcare or human capital shortage in healthcare. What is rather required, and this is what we're um, strongly advocating, is a collaborative approach to training career prospects and working conditions across both the public and the private sector. Next slide. Okay, let me try and summarize very quickly the research findings. Firstly, um, with respect to a single payer approach, both high income countries like Germany and, and others and middle income countries in particular in our context, like Chile and Mexico, have multi-fund partnerships between the public and the private sector in servicing their populations. Of course, South Africa is well suited to a multi-fund NHR given its existing systems and capacities. Put, put differently, I think we should be building on what we currently have in the country, not diluting across both the private and the public sectors. Uh, no countries with a single, with a large single fund approaches have legislative restrictions on private cover. Okay. What are some of the risks that have been identified, as Kaz put it uh, earlier in the findings? First of all, drawing on international experience, there's a clear risk that NHR, as proposed, will be underfunded, leading to unintended rationing and discrimination against the vulnerable in our society. Proposed solution that we're putting forward is a multi-fund partnership approach, which is still consistent with the policy objectives that, uh, that NHR seeks to achieve. Um, if the infrastructure investment needs of the public sector, which is estimated at around 200 billion rand or more, are to be addressed, we need both public and private funding sources and investment that ought to be mobilized. And lastly, expanded training and provision of healthcare professionals is needed, supported by both the private and the public funding streams. Next slide. Okay, just very briefly on this. Um, I don't know where half the slides disappeared, but uh, this is the final slide on the research that we wanted to flag. There are some graphs. I don't know, Sina, why they're not coming up here. Um, you might want to just put it. There we go. Okay. So the, the, the solution that we have put forward is one of a multi-fund approach. Um, this just breaks it down. Uh, uh, colleagues from the uh, portfolio committee will be well acquainted with this. Um, if you have a look at the private sector schemes currently, um, you, can, you can include James in that and what a new NHR fund would achieve. 
um, a multiplayer system we are suggesting with a pooling of, uh, of, of um, with a pooling of, of both risk and resources would lead to, um, if you were to look at a minimum benefit package, would lead to the following. Firstly, a transitioning from a two-tiered approach, as is currently the case, to a more integrated environment. Over time, this would be milestone-driven, of course. Uh, it, it would also demonstrate that virtual pooling is consistent with encouraging contributions from those who can afford to pay for the benefits of the vulnerable, and that's part of the cross-subsidy I referred to earlier. And then lastly, um, this is an, an appropriate approach the research has shown us for low-middle-income countries like ourselves to achieve optimal coverage. Okay, next slide. Okay, I'm going to cover very quickly uh, without expanding much on this because we have raised this in other fora. What are some of the main points of principle that we feel need to be addressed consistent with what Kaz pointed out in his opening remarks and also some of the research that we have just alluded to. So firstly, with respect to chapters four to seven in the bill, um, governance, I know a lot has been said and written around governance. I, I'm not going to repeat too much of this other than to say um, robust governance and transparency are essential to developing public confidence, particularly at this time. And that shouldn't just be confined to public sector, incidentally. We're speaking both about public and private sector in this, in this respect. Professional independent adjudication of appointments need to be incorporated across the funds governance arrangements. A, a little more granular, when we speak about the role of medical schemes, and this is covered inter alien sections 6, 8, and 13 of the bill, NHR coverage must accommodate all members and beneficiaries equally and should aim to expand the reach of, of coverage over time while recognizing the rights of individuals to supplementary voluntary insurance. Of course, speaking to the package of benefits here, which hasn't been fully defined as yet. Notwithstanding the mandatory participation in the NHR fund, patient choice, as is the case globally, should be respected both in the selection of service providers and also between administrators and insurers. Next slide. Okay, following up on that, uh, still speaking to medical schemes, business is therefore concerned about the limitation of rights to insure privately, notwithstanding all, all, all solidarity objectives, which are key, having been met through the mandatory participation of the NHR fund. And again, we're referencing section 6, 8 and 33 of the bill when read together. This limitation of rights will drive out-of-pocket funding for exclusions envisaged under Section 8.2, which, as I indicated earlier, will be regressive in nature for most South Africans. And lastly, insurance, whether statutory or private, should not undermine the rights of individuals to physiological and psychological integrity and autonomy under Section 12.2 of our Constitution. Next slide. Okay, further on, further main points of principle, uh, we speak extensively about phased implementation, that referencing section 57, this should be milestone rather than date-driven. 
Um, I think that's an obvious point, and I think Dr. Nzaluba will cover that later on as well. Legislative changes under Section 58. Legislative changes are, are premature and inconsistent with the progressive phased approach I referred to earlier and above. The risk of legislative uncertainty, which will limit investment in the sector, needs to also be considered here. And again, this references the milestone rather than a time-bound approach. Uh, section two, the single-payer approach, we've alluded to that extensively. This uh, area of principle, again, a single-payer, single-purchaser system does not ensure optimal outcomes for price or supply and is not conducive to strategic purchasing necessarily. And lastly, on the slide, optimal scale and diversified supply ensures best outcomes, limits systemic risk and unintended narrowing of the supply side. Next slide. Okay, um, our specific recommendations, this is my final slide that I'll be presenting, is, is as follows, having regard and constitute consideration for the research, the various consultations that Business Unity South Africa has been involved in, NEDLAC and others, uh, these are recommendations. Firstly, the NHR bill requires review to ensure that there is a clear framework for implementing the NHR fund and that the scope of uncertainty, policy and otherwise, is limited. This includes the following. Firstly, a clear definitions and consistent use of terminology throughout the bill. We've alluded to this extensively in our oral submission. Secondly, we are advocating amendments to Section 6 and 8 of the Bill to ensure that the supplementary role of medical schemes becomes clear. Uh, recommendation 3, the role of medical schemes as set out in Section 33 of the Bill should be amended to allow for the coexistence of NHR and the medical schemes as seems to be the global experience uh, that, uh, that I alluded to coming out of our research. Recommendation four, revision of the governance framework, including the processes for appointments being based on required qualifications, skills, and experience needs to be factored. Five, revisions of the definition of the implementation phases to incorporate clear and objectively measured metrics. Milestones, as I spoke about earlier, needs to be considered. And then lastly, Amendments to legislation should be proposed as required to accommodate phased implementation and reduce unintended consequences, including those that would create policy uncertainty and uh, with a natural impact on, uh, on, on, on both uh, investor confidence and investor perceptions, both, both foreign and domestic, that is. And then lastly, specific drafting, drafting recommendations have been respectfully submitted previously and we would be happy to engage further on those. So, um, Honourable Chairperson, Honourable Members, thanks very much. I'll pass on to my colleague, Dr. Yandan Zaluba, for the next part. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Thanks, Chair. Thanks, uh, Honourable Members of the Portfolio Committee. Uh, I'll also just switch off my slide just to make sure that I do not uh, create problems. The, I'll, I'll be very brief essentially because it's, a, it's just one slide to 
to suggest that uh, there are important lessons that we are learning and we will continue to learn in the process of our national response to the COVID challenge. And especially around how possible it is for us to, to coordinate better public and private sector efforts when we're faced with a major problem and we need to overwhelm the problem. I think one of the things that has been very clear in the course of, the, of our response to this uh, epidemic currently is that it is possible if there's a very clearly articulated objective for the state to occupy the center stage, but at the same time orchestrate the collective marshalling of the resources across the public-private divide. And, and, and we are seeing that actually, sometimes when faced with major challenges like this, these challenges are too big for each of the sectors to want to go it alone. Um, and that in order to succeed for this, uh, in this, we require a good faith, we require goodwill, and more importantly, actually, we just require a clear understanding that, uh, that the benefits of cooperation would far much more surpass the natural tendency that sometimes we have of retreating to our cocoons and engaging in all sorts of self-indulgent sense of individual correctness. And, and, and that in the interest of what is possible for the country, uh, we need to, to be able to marshal every available resource. And I think that's the lesson that we're learning. We're also learning that, that uh, in order to succeed in this, you actually need to have structures of, that allow for open dialogue and that this collaboration is not easy, but unfortunately, the only correct path for us if we want to succeed in, in dealing with the major challenges that we have. The other lesson I think to me that's very important is actually for us to, to be clear about the role of national, what national should do, what the private sector should do, what the provincial sphere of government should, should do. And if we're able to articulate that very clearly, then in fact, it is a, it's not an insurmountable challenge for us to go through whatever other difficulties or differences that we might have. And, and, and I just want to raise this point in conclusion, just to say the collaboration that we're seeing in the national response against COVID now is probably the deepest level of collaboration uh, between the public and the private health sector in the, in the democratic era, certainly. And, 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 and I, I want to salute the colleagues in the, in the National Department of Health and of course the provincial leaders who, who remain at the center of this, but in a very delicate manner able to, co to orchestrate, as I say, this collaboration, therefore unleashing and enabling us uh, as a country to move in step and I think if we take the view that, uh, that the prize that we actually are looking at is too big. This is the prize of making sure that every South African at some point has full coverage. And this is a journey that is not a new journey. It's a journey that was started before. I think this is just a historic landmark in that journey. And I think there are very important lessons that we have to, to learn both in the past around 
making sure that we leverage all the resources that we have at, at our disposal as we move forward. I think those are just the comments I wanted to make, Chair. And I will hand over to, to Martin. Uh, from Martin, going forward, you have four minutes now to conclude. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Chair. Thank you, Dr. Nsaluba. Chair, you'll be pleased to hear I only have two slides. The balance of the slides are detailed drafting uh, considerations, so we'll be able to finish in the time uh, that is available. Uh, as we've indicated, we believe that uh, universal health care is an absolute priority, uh, but it needs to be inclusive, affordable uh, and sustainable. Uh, what is being proposed, of course, is unprecedented in both size and scale. And we think that in the formulation of the proposition, uh, all of the inputs that have been made thus far uh, need to take uh, into consideration uh, the need for uh, ensuring that we can uh, enable health to be uh, both positioned as a fundamental necessity for individuals as a priority, but also for business productivity. Uh, it plays a key role in attracting investment and mobilizing uh, resources uh, in the economy. And as has been said previously, uh, that economic activity is going to be key to funding uh, and ensuring uh, that we can enable uh, NHI as uh, is going to be designed. Secondly, uh, we need to think that it, we, we believe it needs to be formulated as part of a broader component of the social security system. Uh, and as we've emphasized on an incremental basis, as well as integrating all aspects, uh, in fact, as Stavros has indicated, a multi-fund basis. Uh, we support it on the basis of affordability. Uh, if we can go to the next slide, please. We believe that fiscal constraints are a major challenge and we need to bear them in mind in both the design as well as the implementation uh, of uh, a universal healthcare proposition such as this. And in doing that, we need to mobilize skills, capabilities, and the human and financial capital that's available across uh, all segments of society on optimal terms and conditions. Uh, we've highlighted four concerns. I just want to re-emphasize them. We think that they can be appropriately and uh, uh, properly addressed. The first is governance. The second is the right of individuals to ensure their own uh, health risks in addition to a mandatory uh, membership and entitlement. The third is what happens during the transition period. Uh, if we do not clarify fully implemented, we think that should also be easy to do, Chair. And finally, uh, we need to ensure that the economic and financing impact uh, can be framed appropriately in the context of mobilizing and retaining uh, investment skills and capabilities in the sector so that we can expand uh, the health sector as a whole, uh, promote coverage as well as uh, quality of care. We think that a blended approach uh, is the best. Uh, it's able to leverage on both best global practice and what applies within South Africa, as Dr. Nsuluba has said, uh, by ensuring that we can integrate the best possible options uh, to ensure that we have an affordable, viable, and universal healthcare system uh, that both attracts and stimulates investment in the country, creates employment opportunities, uh, and as we've been able to see in the context of the fight against the pandemic, uh, support a strong partnership between all social partners uh, led 
uh, of course, by government and the National Department of Health, supported by uh, business, by civil society, uh, and indeed uh, by labor to ensure that we can put in place universal coverage to the benefit of all South Africans on the best possible terms and conditions. Uh, with that, uh, we have finished our presentation. Uh, Chair, we're happy to take comments and questions. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, I would recognize the hands that have come through here uh, in this order. The first one will be Honorable Ismail, followed by Honorable Hengwa. Number three is Honorable Wilson. Number four is Honorable Dr. Jacobs. Number five, Honorable Sokacha. Number six, Honorable Munyai. Have I left out any other member who would like to ask? Number seven, Harvard. Yeah, uh, we must try Honorable Harvard to write here in our group so that I can also raise your name there. You are then number seven. Any other name? Thank you. Okay, let's start Honorable Members one after the other. Thank you. Um, good afternoon, and once again, thank you for the presentation. I just have a few questions uh, to Dr. Tavros. Apologies if I'm you know, pronouncing your name incorrectly. In your opinion, as the NHI is in its current form, do you believe it will create an environment of equitable healthcare, especially between rural and urban areas? My second question, in what ways will the NHI impact investment? Number three, you mentioned that monopoly will create an environment where there is no competition, therefore stifling incentives for innovation. What consequences does this bring? And my last question to Martin Kingston, in your understanding, what measures have been put in place and in what ways will the NHI, as it currently stands, prevent corruption and looting? Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, Chair. First of all, let me welcome the report to the BUSA. Thank you very much. I have, I think it's one question that does the business unity South Africa think that NHI will increase the speed of transformation in business? And if so, which aspects of the NHI bill can be looked at to achieve meaningful transformation in business working in healthcare? Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you to the presenters for your presentation. Um, it, was, it was well done and thought provoking. Um, I have a couple of questions, and obviously one of the major concerns we have in the health sector at the moment is we have a very high expenditure on health, but we are seeing fast diminishing qualities of health and health services um, across the country. And the AG has reported on several occasions, in fact, continually over several years, um, that there is a severe failure in terms of governance, leadership, and accountability in the health sector. 
Um, so question one is, what? how is this going to impact on NHI going forward? And what would you propose needs to be done? There is a lot of discussion about the inequality of healthcare, and we hear this regularly. Please help me understand, do you see inequality of healthcare as an inequality to access or an inequality on the quality of healthcare? Is it one or the other or both? And if it is both, if it is inequality to, to lack of access or and quality of health, what must be done within the NHI to make sure that this is addressed? Because until such time as that is addressed and there is equality of access um, to, to proper healthcare facilities, the NHI is always going to be compromised. Um, there is a lot of discussion in the NHI about a single purchaser, um, single leveled, uh, and, and the, the um, department being the single purchaser of, of, of health services. Um, in light of the fact that we have such corruption going on in this country, and particularly in the Department of Health, um, what is your comments on this? And there's been a lot of comments with regards to the appointment of the boards. Now, at this moment in time, the NHI gives the Minister of Health the sole responsibility of appointment of boards um, and delegates to the boards. Would you be happier if, in actual fact, the board was appointed by another entity? Um, a lot of suggestions have been made that appointment of this board and interview should be done in Parliament. And that board must be answerable to Parliament itself and not to the Minister, so that some of the um, cronyism uh, opportunities for um, corruption and mismanagement of a system can be um, prevented. Um, would you support this? That is all. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Chairperson, and thank you very much for the presentation. I have four points I want to raise. The one is on your suggestions or recommendations with regards to the future role of the medical schemes. Now, my, I want to draw your attention to the Section 25, which speaks about the Benefits Advisory Committee. I want to ask you whether that section, uh, when it's read in line with section 6, 8, and 33, um, whether that does not speak enough for you with regards to the role of the, uh, the, the medical schemes in the future. And whether it's 57, which also outlines the transitional arrangements, including the phased implementation of the NHI, does not address your concerns. Uh, uh, number two, you spoke about the phased implementation, and I have just raised, raised that in 57. Uh, it is mentioned, but you are saying that it should be defined by implementation milestones. Now, the memorandum on the objects of the National Health Insurance Bill explains that some of the granular details about the NHI, which should be included in the implementation plan, it actually speaks to that. Does it help you to clarify? the plans. My uh, third question, Honorable Chairperson, is uh, on your virtual central purchaser model. 
uh, in the context of that, uh, does does the context of pooling of, of minimum benefits, how does, in terms of that, how does BUSA link this to Section 33 of the bill? And how will this offer the minimum benefit package as proposed in slide 17? And then very lastly, uh, Chairperson, in looking at the Section 27 of the bill of rights and other constitutional imperatives, Whose rights should we be prioritizing? Should we be prioritizing the rights of wealth when the poor have no choices? Thank you very much, Chairperson. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Chairperson. Uh, just a few questions from my side. Um, uh, uh, do BUSA claim that no country you that they have studied has outlawed private sector cover. But the NHI bill does not outlaw private cover or medical schemes. It, out, however, makes provision for the role of private health insurance under the NHI single-payer dispensation. Like other countries, such as Canada, the NHI bill allows private health insurance to cover services excluded under the universal health coverage or the NHI fund. Now, my question to you uh, uh, is, do you think it is important for a a country like South Africa to overcome the two-tier health system that is sustained by fragmented, insufficient, multi-payer systems? Then my, my second question is Busa suggesting that gems should be viewed uh, differently from other schemes regulated under the CMS. Where in your proposal in slide 17 do you position schemes such as PAMET and POLMET? Thank you very much, Chairperson. Thank you very much, Honorable Chair. Uh, my first question is the following. Uh, the presenter's views that single-payer, single-purchaser system do not ensure, do, do not ensure optimal out, uh, optimal outcomes for the for the price or, or supply and it's not conducive for the strategic pass, purchasing let me refer you to the bill section 2 uh, states that the single purchaser and single payer of healthcare services will ensure that the equitable and fair distribution and the use of healthcare services also ensuring that sustainability of funding for the healthcare services. Wouldn't that ensure optimal health outcomes for all rich and the poor in South Africa? If they can answer that question. My other question, Honorable Chair, it's as follows. The memorandum on the objective of the NHI also states that the main problem is the fragmentation of healthcare fund pools in South African healthcare systems. 
does the NHI not aim to create integrated pool in order to achieve universal health coverage for the healthcare services by establishing a, a single purchaser provider split? Please explain in what way does uh, this not address your concern? My third question, Honorable Chair, is as follows. Uh, I'm just looking at my notes. Um, can the concept of the virtual central purchaser be further clarified? Where does, this account where does the accountability lie in such a situation? Lastly, uh, the issue that um, the, the government um, under, under NHI will not support other sectors, I don't think is correct because during the COVID-19, uh, that indeed presented the unprecedented consequences uh, that South Africa has ever seen, possibly in the world. The big business, for instance, amongst others, where had the tax relief, uh, uh, participated in vaccine supply and the distribution therefore nearly almost uh, a billion from the treasury that's planned for, for, for big business. What, what is it that they think that uh, business won't have a role in the future? Okay, uh, who is coming after Honorable Munyai? Dr. Harvard, are you not the one? Is Dr. Harvard there? Uh, Dr. Harvard, you seem to be on the platform. Please take this slot now and mute. Thank you very much, Honorable Chair. My first question in simple terms, is BUSA proposing that each of the schemes proposed under the multi-funder environment should be administered separately? Second one, does BUSA suggest that the single-payer system does not allow for strategic purchasing? If so, could Z please explain? Thank you. Yes. Uh, may I just add uh, three from my side? Uh, then we'll give you a space to answer. Uh, the, the, the presentation that you made was actually in relation to health market inquiry report. And you were like proposed, you were making, a, I think a statement that uh, you don't think much has been done about it. <clears throat> now, uh, one would like to know whether you are suggesting that uh, that report must be attended to completed uh, before there could be any discussion or any embankment on the on the uh, NHI, uh, would you not find it possible to, while implementing health market inquiry, 
uh, recommendations also uh, deal with the uh, programs of uh, universal health coverage, NHI. I mean, so that you can do that simultaneously or parallel to it. Yeah, I, I also wanted to check because uh, when you look into the principle of, uh, one of the principles of NHI is creation of a social solidarity. Now, uh, somewhere you made mention that uh, you think uh, NHI might prejudice the vulnerables. Now, that part, uh, I would need your assistance as to how will that be possible? And then uh, that would be another part I would like to know. Now, there is also this uh, issue about, uh, some one colleague has also asked about uh, the outlaw uh, that you think uh, the NHI is proposing uh, getting rid of uh, medical schemes. But uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to check from there that uh, considering that medical, uh, medical schemes have got many different plans themselves, uh, within themselves, depending which one you are affording. Uh, how, how then do you see the multi-fund type of an NHI, uh, which is what, of, what we are suggesting, uh, continuing uh, giving us a, a, a healthcare, because you know well that depending which one you do, uh, and on August, September, some of the medical aid them, people who have been benefiting and using their medical schemes, depending which plan they are, January to July, after that, some of them, they start lining up on the very overburdened public health, health system. So again, because of this uh, program that you, you actually, we have of the multi-fund type of an initiative. So we'd like to get your support uh, in really getting us to understand some of your responses to these questions. And the honorable members, uh, uh, we may not be able to take a second round again because we are running short uh, of, uh, of time in this regard. Thank you. Okay, Hon Honorable Chair and Honorable Members, thanks very much for all of those questions. Um, Chair, may, may I just check with you how much time remains so that we can appropriately allocate our time to the responses? Machalamba, can you assist me? I don't have this. How much time do you have, Ms. Machalamba? It's five to one now. Yeah, allocated 30 minutes, Chair, to, to, for questions. 30 minutes is allocated for, for questions. Oh, and responses. Yeah. Responses, yes, Chair. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we are way over time. We're supposed to start another presentation at 12.45. Uh, so we are aware of that. So we'll allow you not to exceed 15 minutes now. Not more than 15 okay. minutes. Let, let me try and, with my colleagues on this call, try and uh, respond efficiently. Um, many of these questions I think we can cluster. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to outsource some of the responses to other colleagues. Um, Honorable Ishmael, will NHI address inequality? Um, and uh, I think Honorable Wilson, you also had an inequality against versus access issue. 
um, Honourable Jacobs, uh, you had a, a question around pooling of benefits. I, I see these as kind of all interrelated, and I'm going to ask my colleagues, Roseanne Harris and uh, Teboha, who is on this call, Teboha Padu, to also respond. Um, Honourable Sokacha, um, you, you asked about the positioning of, of certain schemes, particularly PAMED and POLMED. I think I'm also going to ask Roseanne and Teboha to respond to that one. Um, Honourable Munyai, um, your question around um, optimal outcomes with respect to single-payer versus multi-payer systems and um, your question around monopsonies in terms of achieving optimal purchasing and or pricing, I'm going to also ask those colleagues to speak to that. And finally, uh, Chairperson, your, your question um, around um, why would we see in some instances the poor being prejudiced? So I think, uh, let me take that one up front before I pass on to other colleagues. Um, where, where you've got a situation where those who can afford healthcare cover um, outside of an NHR system, for example, or can afford out of pocket, those people um, if they are going to get the NHR benefit, you, you would be losing that revenue stream, so to speak. That revenue stream for those people that can afford would be at the prejudice of, of the poor or those who are vulnerable. So that, that's uh, just simply the equation, the way we see it. I'm going to ask Roseanne and Teboha to elaborate a bit further on that. But I have clustered those questions that speak specifically to equity um, and schemes for them. I'm going to then pick up on the next round of questions as I cluster them um, once Roseanne and Teboha have responded. So over to you guys, thanks. Uh, thank you, Stavros. Thank you, uh, Dr. Lomo and uh, honorable members. Uh, on the question of um, the impact on, on, on inequality, I think when we, when we speak to the issues of uh, equitable access, it's really access, cost, and quality. Um, the, the main thrust of our presentation here is about unintended consequences. I think so. The point is made that this, is, this would be an un unprecedented uh, legislative uh, move in this case, if uh, the private sector was was so limited in its in its role here. Firstly, because um, I think we've demonstrated that these systems can be quite expensive, um, and 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 the exclusivity has some limitations on innovation and an impact on access as a result. There's also some operational risks. So just to make it practical, I'll go through some of the unintended consequences and how they actually um, indirectly play out in, in um, issues of, of access. So uh, from, from, a, from a financing point of view, first of all, I think there's a lost opportunity for employers to be more involved. Uh, so the formal sector in terms of contribution of funds to, uh, to, to, to healthcare. These funds where you have um, single fund models, um, there, there is a risk that you could have um, 
a lack of innovation. There's no, there's no competition at the level of the fund. What typically happens, if I take uh, the medical schemes as an example, if there's a benefit that is not adequately covered, currently people can choose uh, to access their care through a different fund or through different entities, including the public sector, right? Once you have a concentration of that, uh, you have a situation which used to happen back when I was uh, uh, a young community service uh, m- medical officer where the, the, the fund could say we've run out of fund and this is the schedule, this is all we can afford. And the, the patients have actually no, no other uh, access points or ability to access the care elsewhere. Um, and this typically happens in, in outlying towns, rural areas, etc. There is also a dilution of priorities. I think once you, I think the ideal circumstance would be the NHI fund has a pooling of funds, but prioritizes the poor and the indigent at all times. Um, it's not to say everyone is not considered, but the priority uh, should be the poor and the indigent to start with. And once you have everyone in the same risk pool, the rules and the sort of rules that will apply to the fund will will kind of have to apply equally and you therefore ultimately, unintended, have uh, a dilution of those priorities. There is a a concentration of operational risk as well. When the fund, when a 460 billion rand entity fails operationally uh, for some reason, uh, it becomes a national failure and the first people who will be affected by that will be the poor. Uh, the energy sector example is is one I could, that comes to to mind as well. Um, there, there there could be others, but I think as I pointed as I'm pointing out, these administrative and and operational considerations. Should anything fail in a single fund model, uh, there is ultimately a very big risk uh, that uh, the impact will be on 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 the poor and indigent, and therefore you know, access um, um, and, and quality uh, is impacted. Um, I hope I've answered uh, that part of the question. My colleague, Roseanne, uh, will follow through. Thank you. Thank you, and, um, and hello to honourable members. Um, from my side, I've noted um, the questions that um, Stavros has, um, has allocated, so hopefully I will pick up on all of those. Certainly um, recognizing the escalating expenditure um, in the medical scheme environment as the HMI has, um, has noted. And, um, and of course, how this can be addressed is through a number of the recommendations around improving efficiency um, in the private sector that the um, HMI has, um, has made. And important that, um, that, as you stated, Chair, that there is action on these recommendations in parallel and as part of implementing a, a multi-fund model. Um, in terms of inequality, yes, in terms of um, access and um, quality of care. And, um, and of course, this model is, is aiming as part of the policy objectives to address those. So in terms of the future role of medical schemes, the question, um, Honourable Jacobs, around Section 25 is really about um, advisory committees providing input, but not about the medical schemes um, being able to provide um, cover for services. One of the immediate consequences, for example, of the legislative um, proposed changes is that uh, maternity benefits would be removed from from medical schemes immediately. And as you've stated, 
um, currently overburdened um, health system would not necessarily be able to accommodate that immediately, which is why a phased transition and, and removing dates from Section 57 would be appropriate, and rather um, considering those phases from the point of view of, um, of milestones. I think a number of the questions have also addressed this concept of a virtual central purchaser and how um, that would be structured. And it is exactly that point in terms of having a set of, um, of benefits or a package of services that is pooled across the, um, across the environment. Um, the responsibility there could lie um, certainly with government in terms of the regulation of, of those um, benefits, as is currently the case in the social solidarity framework that underpins medical scheme um, regulation. And in terms of the prioritization of rights by ensuring that there is a mechanism by which people who can afford it can continue to provide for themselves, then it actually means that the rights of vulnerable people can be um, prioritized. Certainly not advocating that GEMS is treated any differently to medical schemes regulated under the CMS. Currently, um, GEMS is a, a, a medical scheme just as, as the others, and they would continue um, to exist in a, in a multi-fund um, environment. Um, and the, the virtual pooling, as, as has been seen in, in a number of other countries, then creates an integrated pool, but ensures that the risk of unintended consequences um, is, is, is mitigated. Um, and then just um, finally, in terms of the, um, the recommendations around um, the, the HMI, as I stated, um, part of a phased implementation approach would include that um, parallel process of, um, of implementing those, those recommendations. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much, Chair. With your further indulgence, if I can take the next uh, cluster of questions. Um, in fact, before I do that, there were a number of questions that related to, to medical schemes. I'm just, uh, and uh, Tebocha and Roseanne have, have addressed those in the main. I, I'd just like to ask Dr. Nzaluba whether he would uh, like to add anything further, um, and particularly around the future role of medical schemes. Um, Honorable Jacobs raised that question and um, whether the benefit committees that are described in the, in the bill, um, how they might influence the, the future role of medical schemes. So Dr. Nicola, you don't have much to distribute. Mr. Nicola, you don't have much to distribute. All that is left is four minutes to, dis to deal with the question. So deal with whatever that is there in front of you or allocate, but we have four minutes to wrap up. Okay, thanks very much, Chair. Then what I'm going to do, I'm going to cluster the last set of questions, which are more related to, to governance, accountability, who should be appointing the boards, the MIH board, and also the question from Honorable Hlengwa with respect to how would this speed and up transformation? And lastly, uh, the impact on investment and or stifling of innovation. I'm, I'm going to hand over to Martin Kingston and Kaz Kovaida to respond to those. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Steph. Thank you, Chair. Let me start and then I'm sure that Kaz uh, will carry on. We're mindful again of time. Uh, so with respect to the question on uh, uh, corruption and how we address corruption and abuse, it is clear that we need for uh, a system as comprehensive, as complicated 
and as substantial as this to ensure that there is appropriate governance systems and controls that have been put in place that are fit for purpose. I think our experience uh, uh, with many uh, such institutions has been that that is not the case. Uh, we would rather advocate, uh, obviously, uh, that in terms of the appointment of the board, uh, that is done uh, through a parliamentary process uh, rather than at uh, ministerial uh, discretion uh, for reasons that are self-evident with many other uh, such prior appointments. I would also point out uh, that the abuse we saw as a country last year in respect of the uh, procurement of PPE uh, is something that needs to be guarded against uh, in the establishment of uh, such a fund with significant uh, purchasing power, however uh, that purchasing uh, takes place. Uh, very quickly, with respect to uh, uh, transformation, we believe that that's an absolute cornerstone uh, of uh, economic uh, growth on an inclusive basis. Uh, and as such, uh, we, we, we believe that in the design, uh, it is absolutely possible uh, to ensure uh, that it is done uh, with a mind and an eye specifically to broadening the base of transformation uh, in the context of its uh, immediate and indeed its longer term uh, objectives. And then finally, with respect to investment, as I said uh, earlier, uh, being able to successfully implement uh, a proposition uh, as significant, uh, both structurally and strategically as this, uh, will indeed be a lightning rod uh, either to attract or to uh, repel uh, investment, mobilizing it domestically or, or indeed uh, internationally. So we must be uh, very cautious uh, and thoughtful about the way in which we take it forward. Uh, Cass, you may have something to add. Thanks, Chair. Very quickly, I think the only question outstanding is, is the one from Honorable Wilson. Do we see inequality in healthcare as an inequality to access or inequality to quality healthcare? I, I think we see that, see both. And, and, and I think that one of the purposes of the NHI has got to be to address both access and quality so that when we talk about equitable healthcare, we're talking about access and quality. And we believe that a collaborative approach towards NHI, bringing in both the public and private sector resources and capacities can actually help us achieve that. Thank you. Kaz, thanks very much. Uh, I think, Chair, we've addressed all the questions. There was just one final one that came from yourself with respect to the health market inquiry report. Uh, we, we would see this being uh, attended to in parallel with, uh, with ongoing NHR discussions. And then lastly, the question around uh, prioritizing of rights, whose rights I think Roseanne and Tepoche uh, have covered that but I think just to say that we would see this as prioritizing the rights for all citizens in the country. And uh, thanks very much for this opportunity uh, that we had today. Back over to you. Thank you very much uh, for that interaction. Uh, I was looking forward to meeting Musa, uh, and uh, now I can put the faces to the name and to the organization that you represent, Business Unit uh, South Africa. We want to thank you for your presentation and engagement. Yes, you, we do have uh, your thick document that we can always make reference to as we refine our uh, preparations to get uh, this document uh, finalized by the Portfolio Committee for Parliament. Uh, thanks so much for your interaction. 
uh, you can then be excused. Uh, but you can remain behind. There's another presentation coming in just before lunch from us. Yes. Thank you, Chair. We were looking forward to meeting you, meeting with you as well. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Icon. I think we now have a, a team called Icon Oncology uh, that has shown interest to present to us. And uh, we now invite them. Uh, they were supposed to start at 12.45. We'll we still we'll squeeze our lunch. They are starting now at 13.15. Uh, we will then give you your 45 minutes, which means you at 2 o'clock you stop. Well, before 2, you would have finished your presentation. Then we engage with you for half an hour. Uh, and then that's it. We will not go beyond half past 2. Thank you. Thank you very, very much, uh, Honorable Chair. And, and thank you very much to the committee for, for allowing us this time to present. Um, we'll certainly try our best to make up some of the lost time as far as possible, but obviously we would very much welcome, um, you know, as many and detailed questions as, as possible. Um, just by way of introduction, my name is Anthony Pedersen. Um, I lead the Icon Oncology business, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Dr. Ernst Marais, who is our Chief Operating Officer and who will, in fact, do the bulk of uh, the presentation today. Um, just if I could say that uh, Icon Oncology submitted a detailed submission in November 2019 uh, in, in setting out our commentary and our uh, suggestions and observations in relation to the bill. Um, and today's presentation is largely intended to expand uh, and give some context and color to that submission and uh, importantly, to receive the, the questions that uh, the committee may have. Um, I'm sure, uh, as with, with hopefully most South Africans, I can, I can confidently state that um, Icon Oncology is uh, a, a proponent and supporter of the principles of universal health coverage and NHR. Um, Icon, in fact, uh, in, its, in its makeup and in our stated intent, exists to create access to care and particularly to improve quality of such care and importantly to drive cost effectiveness in the delivery of the care. But of course, uh, it's no surprise and we're aware that oncology is a costly, uh, is a costly form of treatment. The technologies and medicines that are used in treating cancer patients um, are costly. And therefore, um, much of, of what we do is intended to uh, maximize access to that costly care in, in, in a cost-effective way. Um, drawing on uh, some definitions from WHO, uh, you know, it really uh, confirms what I've just said, that uh, the intent of universal health coverage in South Africa is exactly that, to create access to drive quality and also to ensure that it does not um, uh, expose the users of the healthcare to financial hardship, in other words, being cost-effective. Um, with that, I'm gonna hand over to my colleague, uh, uh, Dr. Ernst Maria to, to take the rest of the slides and then we'll take questions. Ernst? Thank you. Um, thank you very, very much, um, Chair and uh, Honourable Chair and Honourable Members. Um, 
I think that uh, we have to acknowledge, and I think this might be in debate about the um, dual system of healthcare that exists in South Africa. I think that there are, at the moment, um, two systems that um, present us with, with challenges. Um, I think that the productivity and outcomes in the um, public sector is a concern, and the, the cost of the, um, specifically, of the private health healthcare sector has been much debated and has been um, uh, the subject of the healthcare inquiry. Um, neither of these systems at the moment serve South Africans um, well, and uh, we think that there is um, NHI will give an opportunity for a collaborative approach to solve problems in, in our um, in our systems. Um, I think that uh, it's not just a, a funding and infrastructure problem um, that exists, uh, but they. Uh, we also um, know that resources in terms of providers that are mostly in the private sector, uh, we take an oncology view here, and it is um, obvious from, from this uh, slide here that 65% of um, oncologists in South Africa are currently in the, in the private sector. That only serves uh, a population of under 10 million people, um, and uh, the rest of the oncologists um, that needs to be supported by, by registrars that's, yet, that's still in training needs to um, serve the bulk of the of, of the population. Um, I think there's an um, opportunity, however, having said that, from to, to share learnings between um, the public and, and the private sector, and um, not only to make the resources um, available, but also to understand um, how value-based models have um, developed in the, in the private sector and think how we can um, address both issues of cost that is relevant in, in both um, sectors and address issues of, of outcomes um, for all South Africans. Just a little bit about ICON Oncology. Uh, we were founded in 2008, and um, it's really what the aim was to extend um, patient access to high-quality oncology care and value-based medicine. And ICON was uh, as really um, always anticipated um, uh, the implementation of universal health coverage under um, the national health system. Um, so ICON is the largest provider of oncology services in the private sector in South Africa. Um, we have 161 oncologists in our network. Um, we also have a, a radiotherapy um, network that consists of 27 facilities and um, extensive uh, network of chemotherapy facilities that are accredited through, throughout South Africa. Um, currently, we also have two existing successful um, um, public-private initiatives, um, the one in the Western Cape at, in George and the one in the Northern Cape in, uh, in Kimberley, where we are um, treating um, patients from both the private and, and government sector um, successfully in our uh, facilities. So. The basics of the ICON model is that um, we, our network oncologists, all collaborate to write ev evidence-based treatment protocols that's based on treatment intent. These uh, treatment protocols are supported by a medicine formulary. And in the private sector, that has made a big impact in terms of the use of um, generics. And uh, we have started to develop um, alternative reimbursements with um, quite a few um, funders uh, and the combination of all of these factors have led to a significant um, decrease in cost uh, in the management of cancer patients. Um, so although ICON's 
primary focus is on um, the chemotherapy and radiotherapy parts of um, cancer treatment. We have to acknowledge that um, oncology treatment is a continuum of care. It starts off with, with screening and the um, initial diagnosis and presenting of patients to, to primary care. Um, normally, cancer is finally diagnosed and, and by, by surgeons in, in theater, um, after which they are referred to oncologists for, for actual treatment. And then um, patients go into either post-treatment survivorship and or end-of-life end of care. It's also important to note that appropriate palliative care is very important in this um, continuum of care and early palliation leads to better outcomes and also to um, redu reduction of cost. Um, we believe that um, access of care can't be just be addressed by um, looking at, at infrastructure. There are four pillars that are very important for um, creating access of care and these would be sustainable finance, reliable health and supply systems, rational selection and affordable process. I'd like to address all of these in, in terms of the um, NHI bill and comment on um, how ICON has been um, reading itself um, for, for NHI and where we think um, there are touch points and where we think there are areas for, for improvement. Um, so rational selection, I'm going to start with that. That um, refers to ensuring that the um, right patients are um, selected for specific patients. Um, so on the NHI, there's provision made for the establishment of quite a few ministerial committees, which would include the Benefits Advisory Committee, the Health Benefits Pricing Committee, and the Stakeholder Advisory Committee. Um, the health benefits will be determined by the Benefits Advisory Committee in consultation with the Minister and the Board, and the Committee will also determine cost-effective treatment guide guidelines. It's important that this, um, these committees um, draw on the expertise that already exists and um, resources that are available um, in the private sector as well. Um, over the last 13 years, ICON developed and we refined and, and used our comprehensive evidence-based um, treatment protocols. Um, these protocols are reviews, revised on a yearly basis through input from our uh, medical oncologists, and we apply health economic principles to ensure cost-effective and importantly, uh, cost-effectiveness and um, also importantly, affordability. Um, so benefit design and evidence-based protocols ensures, in short, that the right patient gets the right care at the right time and at the right price. And we have prescribed minimum benefit level protocols that are based on treatment that's currently available to in government facilities. And these have really been developed and with, with NHI in mind. And um, we believe strongly that protocols such as these can be can form the basis of um, oncology treatment um, under um, NHI. Um, the NHI um, should strategically pro, um, purchase and, and procure. So this is the, the next part of it, the affordability um, of, the, of the process, uh, where the NHI should strategically purchase and procure health services based on the needs of um, the healthcare users, in other words, our patients. The aim of the NHI should be to purchase better care at lower cost. Uh, in other words, contract providers based on value and outcomes reporting should become mandatory. Um, the bill alludes to alternative reimbursement models. Um, insofar that it states in section 41 that payments must be all-inclusive um, on performance of the healthcare service provider, health establishment or supplier of health goods. And payments may be made in condition that there have been compliance with quality standards of care 
with achievement of specific levels of um, performance. Icon believes that the NHI uh, presents an opportunity to move away from a volume-based payment to a value-based payment. Icon has embarked on this um, journey and, and um, has, a trans has already transitioned from volume-based reimbursement to um, value-based uh, contracting with, with our funders at the moment. Um, so value-based contracting is underpinned by quality measurement and ensuring that improvement in clinical outcomes while at the same time minim minimizing cost. The aspects of this that ICON has addressed within oncology, um, the cost driver, which is um, mostly the cost of chemotherapy medicines, and I'm using chemotherapy in a broad definition here. The impact that we've had there is by um, adherence to our treatment protocols and utilization of ICON formulary has had a significant impact on the cost of, of the treatment with, with chemotherapy, cost of radiotherapy, again, protocol adherence and the um, utilization of a, of a network. Uh, a drive of inappropriate end-of-life care. Um, here we are reaching out to partners to provide best supportive care um, as an alternative to uh, additional um, chemo radiotherapy, also um, in uh, also as, as uh, adjuvant therapy in, in those settings, and to look at home care in lieu of hospitalisation, which also um, addresses the the next point of of cost driving, which is hospital utilisation. And then there are other ancillary services that we at this point in time must not address, but have um, plans to address this in the future. So um, we have uh, published the, the impact of ICON protocols on the cost of cancer care. And um, in over the three years from 2015 to 26 to 2017, there's been on average a 27% reduction um, the cost differential that could be shown where oncologists were using ICON treatment protocols for versus um, areas where they were not um, applying these these treatment protocols. Um, cost is only one on one aspect, and I think in the previous presentation, quite a few of the questions was um, about how we're going to address quality and make sure that outcomes are uh, still achieved. Um, so ICON has developed. Uh, quite a few quality measures, and we are using this to contract with um, the funders, the, the current funders, medical scheme funders um, in the private sector. Um, we are looking at hospitalization. Um, the, the outcomes in oncology are often the golden um, outcome that we want to measure is, is overall survival or five-year survival rate. It takes a long time to measure that data, so we need to find proxies for, for outcome. Um, so we often look at um, hospitalization, um, how many patients um, end up in, in hospital with, with treatment, what's the duration while the patients are in hospital, and are there anything, any um, measures that we can put in place to, to prevent unnecessary hospitalization. Other metrics is um, chemotherapy at the, at the last two weeks of life. Is that really necessary? Um, how aligned are doctors to our, our protocols? Um, the, how many patients are referred to appropriate palliation? Are we giving the right antiemetics and are we documenting the right information? So um, where ICON is at the moment, um, the sort of value offering that we are contracting with most of the medical schemes in South Africa, um, we have shown a significant reduction in cost and in improve and, and, and uh, improved quality of care. And we um, very strongly feel that um, the the funding um, this 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 model can be plugged into um, any system, and Icon 
can almost be agnostic towards who the funder is, and that this um, model can work very well in a uh, system where the national health insurance is, is the funder. So um, the NHI fund, if we go to reliable health and, and supply systems and looking at procurement and accreditation, so the NHI fund will um, procure comprehensive um, healthcare services, medicines and health goods and health-related products from contracted and accredited um, healthcare service providers um, from health establishment and other supplies of healthcare needs of, um, of patients. Again, referring to um, section 41, um, where payments must be all-inclusive based on performance of the healthcare service provider, health establishment or supplier of health goods, and that payments have has been to, payments may be made um, on condition that there has been compliance with quality standards of care or the achievement of um, specific levels of performance. Uh, so in order to be accredited and reimbursed by the fund, healthcare providers and health establishments must, amongst others, be able to submit extensive information as prescribed to comply with treatment guidelines, formularies, and, and performance measures. So ICON fully supports the accreditation of service providers and has been working tirelessly to ready itself for um, NHI, so in collaboration with the public sector and inspired by the Office of Healthcare Standards and Compliance, also incorporating international trends in quality insurance and consciousness of um, a move towards greater efficiency in all aspects of cancer care. Um, ICON has um, developed our own set of oncology-specific um, criteria for accreditation and has been um, successfully implemented that to uh, accredit 27 radiotherapy facilities and 55 um, chemotherapy facilities across South Africa. Um, ICON's footprint is in every province and it can provide access to infrastructure that meets government requirements for, for all South Africans. Um, ICON has partnered with um, hospital groups um, in South Africa and the private sector to try and expand the value offering, as I mentioned earlier, um, to provide more holistic cancer care throughout a patient, um, a cancer patient's journey, which would include um, surgery and hospitalization. We strongly believe that under NHI, focus should be placed on capacity planning, and there must be a clear understanding of resources available in the public and private sectors. NHI should control capacity, ensure um, access in underserviced areas and by optimally utilizing the public, utilizing the public and um, private um, infrastructure. Um, much has been said about affordability of NHI and um, the governance required for managing um, a big single fund. Um, work will still need to be done to ensure sustainable, sustainable financing of NHI. In section seven, the administration, management and budgeting of governance of central Hospitalization must be made a competence of um, national government. And in section 13, the minister is responsible for the governance of the national health system. It is important, however, that in the interest of good governance, consideration should be given that, um, to allow a multi-ministerial input into the condition of um, the constitution of, of the boards and directors of the um, NHI fund. A um, couple of further recommendations. ICON would um, recommend that uh, under NHI, uh, the current Health well, Professional Council of South African rules that, limited, that limit reimbursement of multidisciplinary teams be reviewed. 
Um, Outcomes-based reimbursement or risk sharing with pharmaceutical providers is currently prohibited by single exit price regulations. Um, and this should be reviewed under the implementation of, of NHI. Oncology medicines are prohibitively expensive and we should strike a balance between ensuring ongoing innovation and affordability. So performance-based um, reimbursements of medicines offers um, such a solution. And then lastly, um, I think the role of medical schemes, the, uh, the top of insurance of medical schemes is essential in oncology, specifically when it comes to the funding of, of high-cost medicine. And um, further clarity in the role of the private funders um, is still required. Um, thank you very much, Honorable Chair. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Chair. And um, I did say we would try our best to make up some time for the committee and uh, our presentation was, was succinct and to the point. And I think if I can emphasize that um, the purpose of what we've said today is, is an attempt to demonstrate that, um, uh, you know, the private sector is, is, is uh, well positioned and wishes to support the rollout of the NHI and I think can contribute to its success and we'd be very pleased to take questions. Thank you very much uh, for the presentation. It will be Dr. Pedersen and Dr. Maria. I am Dr. Jacobs. I am taking over the chairpersonship for a little while of the uh, hearings today. Uh, Dr. Dlomo, uh, Honorable Dr. Dlomo has something else to attend to. So, honorable members, please uh, let us get your hands. That's a presentation and we're now ready to take hands. I'm going to mention it uh, on this platform. Honorable Flengoa is first. Honorable Sukacha is second. Honorable Munyai is third. Any other hands, honorable members? Yes, please, Chair Wilson. Honorable Wilson will be number four. You still have another opportunity. We're very thankful to uh, Icon Oncology to assist, to have assisted us to make up some time. So I'm going to give another opportunity. Any other hands, honorable members? In that order, then thank you very much. One after the other. Sorry, Chair, I see Honorable Geller's hand is up. Honorable Geller, you'd be number five. Thank you very much. In that order, honorable members, thank you. Thank you, Chairperson. Let me welcome the report on ICON on Oncology. Thank you. It's very informative and point report. Thank you. And it's a very touching report. But let me have one question, Chairperson. I have noted to the recommendations of the ICON Oncology on how NHI can help to improve cancer treatment of the issues that the cost of oncology medicine is very expensive, is expensive. 
I want to know whether I whether iconology has recom, has recommendation on how NHI legislation can help to lower the cost of oncology medicine to help everyone have access to adequate cancer treatment under NHI. Thank you, Chairperson. Thank you very much, Chairperson. Uh, I just want to check from uh, ICON. Uh, they have made uh, a recommendation for outcome-based reimbursement or a risk sharing with uh, pharmaceutical providers. It is good that you are interested in this approach for payment, given the need for efficiency. Will that not be considered by the Healthcare Benefit Pricing Committee as outlined in section 26 of the bill? Please advise the committee. Honorable Chair, thank you very much for the opportunity. Mine is very simple, uh, Honorable Chair. Uh, the presenter has requested clarity on the future, future role of medical schemes. Section 25 outline of the, uh, the functions and composition of the Benefits Advisory Committee. As the Advisory Committee defines the NHI package of services, it will uh, not be clear what complementary service medical schemes will provide this is, this is uh, supported by section four and section seven, and the clause 33 deal, which deals with um, the future role of medical schemes. Including this in the bill uh, will cause parliament to keep revising the act uh, whenever they get advice from the benefits adversary committee. Will, will, will that not be sufficient? Because it's, um, and I think it's important to look, uh, you know, deep in the bill, because those act clarifies that the, the 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 role of the medical aid, and the role of the uh, the benefits advisory committee. Thank you, honourable chair. <clears throat> thank you, chairperson, and thank you to to Icon for the presentation. Um, one of a lot of there's been a lot of discussions around the inequality of healthcare in South Africa. Now I think this is a two-way street. There's inequality in terms of access to health facilities, and um, particularly in the rural uh, communities, and inequality in terms of the quality of health. Um, there are concerns have been raised that while the cost of of health is, is um, increasing, um, and we're seeing higher expenditures in health, what we are definitely seeing is a backward trend in terms of the quality of health. Now, in South Africa, we only have, and, and I, I, I think I'm correct, 10 hospitals, 10 public facilities that offer um, health for, for cancer patients, particularly in terms of oncology, radiation, and aftercare. 
Um, and this is serious considering that we are seeing a, a, a constant increase in the um, incidences of cancer across the board in South Africa. How do you think that the NHI bill needs to deal with this? And in terms of the costs of, of oncology radiation and the, the chemotherapies and the technology that goes with treating cancer, how will the situation that the government becomes the single purchaser of health um, and its requirements in South Africa affect the oncology um, sector? And lastly, in your opinion, the, the appointment of the board and some of its entities becomes the sole mandate of the Minister of Health. Um, but suggestions have been made that this is incorrect. It should not, no such power should be given to the Minister, in, particularly in light of what we've been exposed to just recently. Would you agree that the appointment of the board should be done differently? And suggestions are that the appointment of the board needs to be made um, and those interviews need to be made by Parliament itself and that the board becomes answerable to Parliament and not to the Minister. Um, would, I would appreciate your comments. Thank you. Honorable Gela, your network is very bad. It's me. Do you hear me, Chair? I would suggest you post that question to me, Honorable Gela, unless we can hear you now. I'm still not audible, Chair. Do you hear me, Chair? Yes, I hear you now. Please continue. Okay, thank you very much. I'm having only one question that I want to ask. Uh, my question is on, on, on only one question on oncology uh, service uh, regarded as a very high cost. Uh, what is ICON's uh, proposal on how funding for such uh, should be uh, provided for. Thank you. I'm done, did you hear my question? Yes, I did, Honorable Gela. Thank you very much. Um, honorable members, that brings us almost to the close of today. I have one question which I would like to raise uh, to the presenters. And it is on the view of ICON in respect of supplier-induced over-servicing. Um, because I do know that they talk about uh, or they suggest a relationship between or a partnership between pharma and themselves. And, and we understand the importance of the, the drugs which are required for oncology services, especially, of course, the chemotherapy. We also understand that it, those are very expensive drugs and we understand the cost related to treatment for cancer um, we do realize that uh, those do pose constraints in terms of people being able to receive uh, either chemotherapy or radiotherapy for that matter or any other treatment uh, for cancer 
uh, even surgical treatment. But thus, the suggestion of a partnership with pharma not exacerbate uh, this dilemma of, uh, of, of possible over-servicing. Uh, thank you very much. And you're very welcome to please answer the questions which had been posed to you. Thank you. Thank you very, very much, Honorable Chair. Um, uh, between Dr. Murray and myself, we will answer the questions. Um, I have noted them down. Uh, I hope Dr. Murray has as well. And uh, I'd ask Dr. Murray to start with uh, the first question posed by Honorable uh, Schlingwa. Um, yeah, thank you, um, honourable members, for for the questions. Um, I think there are quite a, quite a few questions um, again that uh, specifically are concerned about the the cost of of cancer treatment, and um, even more specifically about the cost of of chemotherapy. And honourable Flingwas, um, the question is how the NHI can um, help address specifically the the cost of of, of medicine. Um, and we need to talk about oncology medicines in two broad categories. It's the cost of uh, originator medicine um, and for that, that comes from multinational companies. Um, and these new treatments are excessively expensive and we are looking at new um, immunotherapies that cost in excess of a million rand per, per treatment per, per patient. Um, and there's always um, debates ongoing about how you find a balance between um, making sure that there's innovation for these, the, uh, that these companies should continue to, to innovate. Um, and uh, at the same time, balance the, the cost of, of treatment. Um, and uh, what we've alluded to, and, um, and I think that is um, also maybe um, addressing your question, um, Honorable Chair, about the relationship with, with pharma. Um, the, the performance-based reimbursement uh, models that we um, have, have suggested is uh, something that where you would, um, is in the realm of what we call precision me medicine to make sure that your patient selection becomes better and better over time. And that when um, you give access to these um, treatments that are so expensive that you're sure you, you make 100% sure that you select the right patient. And if patients do not respond to these treatments, some of the risk is being absorbed by the pharmaceutical company itself. Um, it is not, uh, in my opinion, any form of uh, perverse incentive or um, a supply-induced demand that will um, occur in, in, in this situation. Um, because of the, the risk that is being absorbed by the pharmaceutical companies itself. There are very good evidence um, that this has been um, implemented quite successfully in um, other countries, particularly in, in um, Italy, where um, risk sharing between the central government and pharmaceutical companies have been implemented with, with good success. And I believe that there are real opportunities in South Africa to do something similar. Um, the other aspect of, of medicines is the utilization of, of generic medication. Um, and I believe that there's um, uh, a lot that can be done. Um, there are pharmaceuticals in companies in South Africa that can develop, develop um, um, generic medicines and are already doing so. Um, and the, by doing good uh, formulary management and making, again, making sure that there's um, protocol adherence, we ensure that the right patient gets the, gets the right care. Um, and that is more of, a, again, appropriate patient selection um, that will reduce the, the cost of, of oncology treatment and specifically 
um, of chemotherapy, um, as we define that in the um, in, in the in the broader term. Um, and uh, I think that Honourable Sokacha also um, that is a question was asked uh, by the member um, on um, out outcomes based reimbursement, reimbursement um, and uh, I think all of uh, these types of alternative reimbursement models, whether it's um, risk sharing with pharma or uh, a very specific um, value-based models will take into um, account uh, the, the specific um, criteria that was decided on, on how um, we, we measure outcomes and um, how you would incorporate that in, into a, a value-based payment. Um, so um, I hear that the, the, these will be considered by the pricing committee. Um, that will be constituted under under NHI. Um, and I think that is our recommendation um, that we must take heed. The pricing committee must take heed of of learnings um, that is uh, from from models that that already exist. And I think that we have uh, demonstrated that when we implement um, models where um, patient selection are done appropriately, um, protocol compliance is high and the formerly management is as is appropriate um then you hold doctors accountable and uh there are um, a reduction there's a reduction in, in cost of of um treatment i think that is sort of in in terms of the the questions uh around the um cost of, of oncology um medicines uh, i think that um i'll put that also addressed uh, honorable gelas um question on that. Um, I think that, uh, Anthony, do you have anything to add on this on this topic? You're muted. Apologies. Thank you very much. Uh, there were a few other um, members that uh, posed further questions. I'll deal with Dr. Uh, with Honorable Munya um, regarding the role of uh, medical schemes. Um, and I, I would agree that the the, the act uh, or the bill broadly uh, indicates that um, medical schemes will exist to uh, as complementary to top up um, benefits that are not covered by NHI. Um, and I think that, you know, that is correct. In uh, Often with these type of matters, the devil can be in the detail. And if one has a look at... Um, uh, different modalities of treatment for cancer, um, and particularly in the use of of these high cost drugs, it uh, it the 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 detail can become complicated uh, when making a, a very a broad reference to being a complementary product to the NHR. Um, so, for example, uh, under the in the benefit um, package. Um, if that specifically includes which drugs are included and which are not, then potentially that could um, clarify the role that a, a medical scheme could fulfill. And similarly, in radiation treatments, uh, there are um, simple modalities of treatment and there are more um, complex modalities of treatment. So if the benefit package um, you know, goes down to that level of uh, detail, then uh, it would it would be adequately addressed. But if, for example, the um, the NHI or the benefit package is not clear on which modalities of radiation or which techniques of radiation treatment are included or are not included, 
that uh, could be problematic. Um, um, Honorable Wilson um, made reference to the um, uh, uh, the appointment of the board um, and the accountability or, or, or whether the um, board should be appointed um, by parliament and be answerable to parliament. Um, you know, I think our our view on this is that the um, the appointment of the board needs to be such that um, any um, of the of the unfortunate examples of um, cronyism and graft and other uh, things which have have sadly come become um, prevalent in in such boards uh, of late are dealt with, and whether that uh, means um, that. Uh, the, that Parliament appoint the board and are, are the board answerable to Parliament, then we would support that. I mean, I think our our uh, concern is that um, you know those negative elements are addressed. Um, then, um, in relation to uh, Dr. Wilson, also asked uh, beg your pardon, Honourable Wilson also asked the question regarding um, access to care and the fact that. There are very few public facilities uh, which currently offer um, uh, oncology treatment. Um, and here again, and, and I'm sure Dr. Maria can complement what, what my view on this, but um, you know, that's quite correct. Uh, there are, however, a few uh, very, uh, there are centers of excellence in the public sector that have a significant infrastructure uh, for, for the treatment of patients. Um, the biggest problem, uh, in my view, in the public sector is human resource, not necessarily infrastructure. And um, that is a clear example how in, in NHI, um, uh, in NHI it's, it's critical that uh, the public and private sectors work collaboratively uh, in the provision of care. Um, Ernst, do you want to add to that? No, I can just concur. I think that uh, um, the... As I alluded to in, in my presentation, the bulk of uh, oncologists um, practice in, in, the, in the private sector. Um, there are very few um, that remains in, in, in the public sector. And um, there's, there's lots of opportunity to create collaboration between the private sector and the, um, and the government hospitals. Um, there um, is infrastructure that is also available in um, more rural areas uh, that uh, and if we can utilize the infrastructure in the um, in the rural areas for both government and private patients um, it will be in everybody's interest thank you very much is that the, the end of your answer your answers to the questions Uh, yes, it is, Honourable Chair, unless there are any others. Thank you. Honourable Members, I do not note uh, any follow-up questions. Are there any follow-up questions from yourselves? We have a minutes which we have made up. Honourable Chair, I raise my hand. Thank you, Honourable Munya. You're very welcome. Any others? I am looking on the platform and I do not see any others. Honourable Munya? Yeah, all, all I'm saying, Honorable Chair, is that they did not respond to my question. The presenters did not respond to my question. 
my question has been very clear because they've they've requested a clarity on the future role of medical schemes and i've outlined that section 25 in fact section 25 outlined the functions and a composition of the benefits adversary committee as the adversary committee defines the nsa packages of services will it not be clear what complementary service medical schemes will provide so the section is also supported by section 4 and section 7 and clause 33 that deals with the future role of medical schemes including this in the bill will cause parliament to keep revising the act wherever they, they get advice from the a benefits advisory committee will that not be sufficient because why i'm raising this issue is because they have said that uh, the, the 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 private medical schemes is not mentioned in the bill thank you honorable munya doctors maria and peterson you want to answer the question um can I ask uh, Dr. Murray to, to provide his views? I provided uh, initially, which, which didn't answer adequately. Sorry, I'm just trying to unmute myself. Um, uh, uh, Honorable Mignot, I think that, uh, that the points you raise are, um, are, are valid. I think that um, the, we, think in the presentation did not say that it is completely unclear what the roles of medical schemes um, are going to be. I think that there are, um, was some clarity that um, we, we required, but I think that even in the points that you've made and the points that you've raised, um, it is definitely more clear what the roles of, of the future um, of medical schemes are going to be. And if the, the, the Act then addresses um, it as the need arises, it would be sufficient. Thank you very much. I hope that answers your question, Honorable Munyai. Uh, come to the end of this morning session. Uh, I again want to thank all of those who came to make presentations to the portfolio committee. And uh, we are right on time to take a lunch break. We will be back at 14.30 to receive a presentation from Sanofi Aventus. We will then have another presentation by Innovator Pharmaceutical Association of South Africa and the last presentation by Abbott Laboratories. Let us please be back here at uh, 1425. We would suggest that you do not switch off your, 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 your uh, devices or leave the platform, that you enjoy your lunch and please be back here and that in the interim that uh, we would have the presentation of Sanofi and Aventus uploaded while we are having a short lunch break. Thank you very much. See you back later. <laughs>